Hey y'all, this is Phil, here to introduce another Filthy Talk. This time I talked with a guy named Abram Hagstrom, who is a pretty fascinating individual. Um, He's a trucker by trade at the moment, but is also um, kind of a jack of all trades, and He's decided to focus, much like I have and many people I know and admire, to spend less time thinking about his career per se uh, and more time trying to find ways to serve things that he thinks are more worthwhile, like his family, um, his faith. He's a Christian guy. I've got another Christian on, which is kind of nice. I've been really digging getting these different perspectives, ones that are kind of far from mine. Um, But that's not really heavy in the conversation. Abram and I talk um, about polyamory and kind of my situation with that and why I've chosen it. Um, We also talk about marks, which is kind of fun because Abram... Uh, is also, I think, something like a libertarian. So he doesn't think very much of Marx. He wrote an essay that was not uh, very favorable. And I just kind of tell him why I like Marx and um, how it, how Marxism kind of plays into my anarchist thought. Um, and then we wrap up with a little bit of uh, talk around this guy named David Eisenstein, who is a very interesting modern intellectual, um, I guess a philosopher of some kind, you could call him, um, who talks about narrative and the importance of the stories that we tell ourselves and how he sees two stories, one of, um, he calls a story of separation and another he calls a story of interbeing. Uh, one thing tries to uh, obviously kind of separate everything and and delineate and compartmentalize, and one story tries to identify, I don't know, maybe as many connections as possible. And um, anyway, I don't know. It was like a good conversation. So polyamory, Marxism, and Eisenstein. I actually, Abram reached out to me after listening to a podcast I did with Don Corcoran, which is a little bit back in the feed if you want to go listen. Um, Don was uh, another Christian guy I talked to, and that was like also not very important in our conversation. We were able to talk about a lot, um, but I guess Abram wanted to talk to me. And so um, he mentioned that he was interested in David, David Eisenstein, and I thought that was really fascinating because 
to my mind, Eisenstein is um, pretty radical on the left side of things. And so I'm always interested in this idea in like the political spectrum that uh, if you go far enough left or far enough right, they eventually kind of meet up where we have radical anarchists on the left and um, I guess you'd call it reactionary Republicans or uh, libertarians on the far right. And it ends up seeming like through things like homestead culture and DIY stuff, um, there's some commonality and between autonomy and hatred of government. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but, um, it's kind of nice to meet somebody on the other end of that spectrum and, and find a lot to talk about. Um, so anyway, I'm very thankful to Abe, uh, to Abram for his time and for having me over, uh, we recorded on his setup, so it'll sound a little different than normal. Um, but he has a podcast. We co-released this, so um, you can also find a little bit different version of this over there on his podcast feed. And his podcast is called The Hinterlands, um, which is like hinter, rhymes with winter, starts with an H. Hinterlands, which is a phrase for uh, the fringes of something or... When you go to the hinterlands, you're kind of out in the boondocks. You're in the on the edges, kind of almost in the middle of nowhere, maybe. Anyway, uh, so that's kind of a good concept for podcasts. Um, gives you a sense of, of things a little bit. But anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Abram Hagstrom. Uh, it was fun. Okay. Bye-bye. That is just disgusting. Welcome to Filthy Talk. Rock and roll. Hey. Uh, okay. Hey, Abram Hegstrom here with Phil Griffin. Yeah. Um, Phil is a Billings native, 26 years old. Yep. And musician. Mm-hmm. You play upright bass, among other things. Yep. Okay. I try. <laughs> We're recording today at the CLDI offices here in the basement. So shout out to Eric Basie and the CLDI team. Yo. <laughs> and, um, shout out. <laughs> also, I, I guess I just wanted to say that um, one of our common interests is rock climbing. Yeah. So shout out to uh, Jim and Heath. World? Yeah. Oh, Heath, yeah. Steep World Climbing Fitness. Yeah, we we kind of hung out yeah, we for did. the first time there. Yeah, that was on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Under the lights. <laughs> right. Our first date. Kind of impromptu. Yeah. <laughs> so we're here today to discuss three topics. We're going we're to try to discuss polyamory, Karl Marx, <laughs> and Charles Eisenstein. Specifically, Eisenstein wrote a book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And um, I just got some ideas that intrigue both of us. So we'll try to touch on those. But first, um, like we were talking about off, off mic, mm. let's do a little bio. You want to start? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> but I can. To. Yeah, if you want. <laughs> um, go ahead. Why don't you do it? Sure. Um, so this is mainly going to be for your listeners because the people listen to my podcast. I already know. Oh, yeah. And, and the cool thing about Phil is that he does his own podcast called? Um, I, well, I have a couple, I guess, but Filthy Talk is my show. 
Filthy Talk? Mm -hmm. I thought it had something to do with waste radio. Well, it's a kind of a mess, but it also has some uh, strategy to it. Because we have a, an art collective called Waste, Vet, waste Division, and our feed is Waste Radio. But my idea is to like put a bunch of different shows into the same feed under like a broader radio. Okay. Um, so one of the shows I produce on there is Filthy Talk, and then another, another one we have is Waste Books, which is like a book club podcast. Am I too hot? I think you're a little hot, but you, okay. you should be good there. You don't, you don't have to get so close. Okay. Because it's, it's picking up good. I'm also just kind of comfortable leaning on Yeah, good. You're good. So, so you've got a few different channels that you're publishing to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But so that, and that's how I heard about you, is because I was at Story Night. Shout right. out to Tyler Murphy and yeah, those yeah. guys. Um, and listen to your discussion with Don Corcoran. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I was like, dude, I want to talk to this guy. Yeah. So that's sweet. So that's why we're here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for your listeners, um, I am 36 years old, father of four, um, born and raised in Billings, done some world traveling. Um, I am not really a musician, but I play guitar, <laughs> um, speak Spanish. Oh, cool. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm a trucker by trade. That's, oh. what, that's what I'm doing yeah. for an income these days. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. driving truck. Nice. Um, yeah. What I mean, what else would be interesting to know? Um, well, I don't know. I was like um, more of a narrative, like less data. Like mm. growing up, um, what type of household you had, or um, that kind of thing. Quick, if you could do that quickly, it's it's hard to stay right. out of the weeds on that stuff sometimes. But. Um, yeah, my parents stayed married for thirty-five years. Mm. Got a divorce when I was. I don't know, must have been around 33 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, watching their marriage, unfortunately, never made me want to mm. duplicate it. Mm. Yeah. So, Feel that. Yeah. Um, and that's not, you know, to... Denigrate them. Not at all. Yeah. It's just uh, they're, they're such different people that they were never really able to see eye to eye. And they did the thing, you know, stay together for the kids. Mm -hmm. And their their idea, their idea was uh, to try to act in service of our best interest mm -hmm. rather than just pursue their own pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. ultimately, and and the way my dad is the, the one who initiated the divor the divorce, mm -hmm. and the way that he did it was to try to take care of my mom as well as he could without living in the same house. Mm. So he built her her own house or, or bought and remodeled the place especially oh, I see. for her and um, so he's trying to do it right and do it nice or, yeah um, and they're still on on really amicable terms nice. when we see them they treat each other with all the respect in the world they can hang out and they they could and and maybe occasionally do like mm -hmm. um, get coffee or go on a walk but but again like for the very reasons that their marriage didn't work that well mm -hmm. It's they're, they're not natural friends. Mm. The thing that mm. the thing that ties them together is their children. Mm. Yeah, I know that really scared my wife. You know, because we we were not newlyweds, but mm. we'd only been married four years oh, or yeah. so. And then mm. my dad was like, "I'm out of here." Wow. And yeah. and my wife said something to me behind closed doors to the effect of like, "Are you gonna do that too? Because mm. if so, let's just cut to the chase." Damn. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So. Since you brought it up, and if you don't mind me asking about it, like, growing up then, w you say that you didn't really, observing their marriage didn't make you want to duplicate it. 
what sort so obviously there was tension in the marriage all along or did that manifest somehow like in your household growing up like something I'm interested in lately a lot is just going back to my own childhood and figuring out the tensions I was dealing with like as a kid and then thinking about how that affected me mm-hmm. so I might be trying to do like a psychological dive with you too soon here but no it doesn't it's fine <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm an open book on this yeah, stuff that's my, my, figure. my only hesitation is like this involves other people's stuff of course um, so yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about my folks is that they weren't openly contentious all the time. Mm-hmm. There were times when, uh, you know, you, you'd hear yelling behind closed doors, mm-hmm. but they tried to be at least civil mm-hmm. when they were together and in front of us. Mm-hmm. They also, I think both did their best not to lean on their children as partisan advocates of nice. Yeah. one parent or the other right so that was good I never felt like I had to choose between the two mm. never mm-hmm. sometimes I you know I'd give my mom advice like she, she would just open up to me about the struggles and mm. I'd say mom I, I think what about this mm-hmm. and occasionally that would be really helpful to her mm. and she would tell me as much mm-hmm. um, but yeah you know you see two people that don't really get along but have to live together and you but mm. who, who would want that yeah. nobody would Some want kind that of hell, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think I was very traumatized by it. Mm. Like, I, I remember saying to myself as early as like the eighth grade or something, I will never marry someone like my mom. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And so that was like this deep and fairly unacknowledged vow mm. about this type of woman. Uh, I don't, I don't like this type of woman mm. and I'm going to avoid them. Mm. Now, the reasons for that were probably numerous, but what ended up happening way down the road after I got married, as I realized that I had carried the baggage of those judgments Mm. into my own marriage, Mm. and I was Mm -hmm. putting that baggage on my wife, who wasn't my mom, and so (laughs) I had to like come to grips with that and repent of it, Mm. contact my mom, because I was out of town at the moment, Mm. and apologized to her and Mm. said, Mom... I had this judgment against you for all these years and mm. didn't realize it until I started to notice the effects of it on my own wife. Nice. Yeah. And so she was crying on the phone mm. and I was, you know, I was just, just having to come clean. Mm-hmm. And really, mm. I realized that I needed to do that, like transact that relational piece with my mom mm. in the interest of serving my own marriage. Right. Like it was like this this stumbling block that was mm. under the rug in our in our home mm. because of business that I hadn't dealt with nice. in another place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, one of my favorite concepts. I was trying to fix my dryer a while ago. So I was looking up YouTube videos, and there's one where a guy um, was working on it, and he had, like, his kid running around behind him, kind of, so it was, like, cute that way, just a dad. But he had, like, a personality, like, dryer-fixing man, like, YouTube guy. <laughs> but he's just, like, a normal worker guy. Um, but one point that he made when, when he was talking about it, I was like, all right, when you're trying to fix this, like move everything away from it, like move the washer over here. If you have anything else, like move it away from the wall, because as you're working, like you're going to like run into these things, like they're going to get in your way. Mm-hmm. And as, as you do that, like if you make it harder for yourself, you're going to reach frustration level quicker. And when you're trying to fix something, pretty much you're working against yourself. 
and like at the level at which you quit because you're pissed off. Mm -hmm. So he, he talks about like basic things, like just make sure you can walk around the dryer when you're fixing it. Mm -hmm. And I, there's something about when you're talking about like your mom and dealing with that, like maybe she was a washer like in your way that mm -hmm. you hadn't, or these judgments were the washer that were mm -hmm. in your way as you're trying to like figure out the dryer of your marriage yeah <laughs> it's a little strange metaphor but i'm into that kind of thing <laughs> it's it's good like to think conceptually i mean whether whether or not it makes sense or it's transferable to mm. another person's mind yeah it yeah. still could be serving you in a way that helps you understand the relationships between two or, or more things yeah yeah such that you can organize that in a way that is workable exactly yeah yeah so but so that's that's a little bit about me cool is yeah that, we got like into that? it thank you yeah thanks for for sharing that yeah um, I guess my story is similar in some regards. The, these things like have patterns, it seems. I've been interested in like uh, archetype, like how our lives have different big figures. I guess it's like an analogy kind of for, but um, so my parents divorced when I was like five or six. That ended up being a big deal. Their marriage also was one that I didn't really want to want to replicate um one of my early memories is like a big fight with them that ended with my dad like with stitches because they were slamming a door back and forth and yelling at each other mm. um so obviously that was good my mom um is uh, goes to aa and that's always been a big deal she does to this day yeah mm -hmm. yep she's active she likes to sponsor people and um, but that was always a rub for them in their marriage. She kind of had, uh, she really wanted to go to meetings sometimes. Like it, it became a new addiction of sorts, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of a fascinating concept to me. Um, but growing up with that, I've always thought about marriage and, uh, addiction and, um, let's see. So. I don't know, growing up, my parents remarried and both remarried like kind of, I guess you just say like OCD type people with their cleanliness. Each of them married some other yes. OCD person. Yep. They, okay. they kind of turn around and married the exact opposite person, which like kind of makes sense. From one another? Ways. Yes. Okay. Uh, so like they're both pretty type B or whatever the not type A. Non-organized? Yeah. They're pretty loose and go with the flow. And then I guess they got got damaged with each other and didn't want to try that again it seems I, I don't, it doesn't seem like a conscious decision but yeah. it's kind of funny um, so growing up that way <clears throat> something I've been working through is like big um, resentments I have with my parents or step parents um, and kind of I'm finding that I too am having to let go of judgments that I made like growing up I'd be pissed about you know like not being able to feel comfortable in one of the houses because like I didn't want to make a mess and like ruin this um, like better homes and gardens feeling about it mm. um, I always criticized my mom for that mm. kind of feature because in my estimation as a as a child and then as a teenager it always seemed like she wanted a house that looked like nobody lived in it yeah 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 and i was like mom what's more important the people who live in here or like how this looks how picturesque this yeah. place is yeah. 24 7 right and I, for whatever reason she i mean i don't know that we ever saw eye to eye on that and maybe mm. 
unbeknownst to me, she kind of loosened her grasp on it and let slide things that she otherwise wouldn't have. Sure, right. I, I just don't know. Yeah, yeah. But it always seemed like the cart was getting in front of the horse. Mm. And I was always like, Mom, what is this place for yeah, yeah, except yeah. to be lived in? Right, right. Yeah. So that was a big one. It made me mad when I was growing up. I ended up spending... Like, I didn't really bring my friends home because I didn't feel comfortable there. Hmm. Um, I'm talking about one home in particular, but I won't, like, specify. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so I ended up, like, hanging out at my buddy's house a lot. Like, Guthrie Brown is his name. He's from around here. I know Guthrie. Yeah, do you? Yeah, because I, I was in a band with his older brother. Oh, get out of here. Taylor. Okay, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, so Guthrie and I are really tight. I, um hung up like hung out at his place a lot in high school was that up on off of rimrock yep okay yeah that cool house yeah mm-hmm. that's funny so man um oh but these judgments i, I just like that you brought that up because i kind of had to do the same one thing that i did in my marriage that ended up being pretty detrimental was like projecting these expectations uh that my wife was going to behave like my well my stepmom did Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that, like, she was Sydney was also clean and Sydney organized. Was, is my wife? Your ex- my wife. Your ex-wife. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sydney. Right. Yeah. Um, so I would like Sydney would would try to clean things up, and I would be like, all of a sudden, kind of pushed into this mode of like, why are you being so organized about this, or like, why are you being so. Uh, OCD about this essentially mm-hmm. and I don't she might have some OCD qualities too but most of the time it was me projecting onto that and that ended up being bad or you know because then she'd be like I'm my own person like why are you putting this on me like I'm, I'm just doing things for a totally different reason but you're assuming that it's the same as it was when you're growing up exactly and that's been like a big issue for me is like trying to retrain myself so I don't have the same reactions mm-hmm. that I've pretty much habitualized for however long well how long were you married two years okay yeah and then how long ago was the divorce Uh, well we technically filed the papers just in the last few months but i moved out of the house uh last august so not about 18 months ago okay all right yeah or something yeah so this could probably be um a good segue into one of the three topics yeah. into polyamory yeah yeah my guess is that your forays into that field have been spurred on by the marriage that didn't work out uh, it's a reverse actually the marriage worked out and the, then you the, didn't the, go into the marriage didn't work out because of my forays into this stuff in other words you were cheating on your wife with multiple partners no okay no 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 but we were discussing it okay it's right. a long story just discussing it yeah 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 alright um, I Wait, always just, follow just the rules. <laughs> before you do, before you do, um, I don't think we said that we'll, we'll co-publish this conversation. Yes, so yeah. I'll publish for my listeners and probably edit some of the the loose ends, uh, the loose ends out, just uh, so it'll be shorter. Or we'll cut it into two. I'll publish it as two different episodes, you know, an hour each or so, and then you, you'll do whatever you feel like with yeah. it. Yeah. All right, cool. So polyamory, yeah. your story, the long story. Yeah, yeah. Never cheated on Sydney. I want to clarify. Good. Sorry, I, <clears throat> I didn't. Mean, I didn't mean to imply that. <laughs> no, that's okay. It did make it. I set up. Set it up for you. Actually, let me put this jacket. Yeah, go for it. Um, I don't want a noisy one. So, Sydney and I started dating when I was a senior in high school when we were seniors I guess 
Um, but we had a crush on each other, like back and forth, kind of for four or five years before that. The timing never worked out, and then it did finally. And so we did that, dated through through high school, through college. We lived together, like starting our sophomore year of college. Um, so from that point, I actually kind of considered us like trying out a marriage um, type scenario where we were living together and cohabitating and like spending most nights together and that kind of thing. Okay. And yeah. Not consciously at the time, but like we were just sort of on, like that's a step that you take in my mind if you're like trying to live with somebody or, mm -hmm. or be a partner of theirs. So we did that. Um, graduated college and decided that we wanted to move back to Billings and work and save and move to a city sometime. Um, Sorry, maybe I missed where you were. So uh, we went to Missoula for college, then we came back to Billings. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had st I read about polyamory in an anarchist book when I was in high school. And it intrigued me and like struck a chord with me, but it was like late at night I was reading and I kind of tucked it away and didn't think about it for a few years even really. Um, and then it popped up. My friend Julius was the one who gave me the book and he'd been thinking about it like a few years ago or a few years beyond when I discovered that we were in college and he started talking about it. And then I developed a crush on a girl in my calculus class in college. Um, and it became like very powerful. And I felt like I had to share it with Sydney. Um, the crush? Yes. And say like, but I also had been thinking about polyamory. And so. was the, Were you married at this time? No. You no, still we were together married. five years at that point, maybe. Okay. Four years. Yeah, because our relationship was nine years long. And you were, so, were you still pursuing your degree? Yes. And, and you were in Missoula, and folks, just so folks know, yeah. you, you have a degree in philosophy? In English. Both? Two. Double yeah. major? No, I have two uh, bachelor's degrees, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and you earned them in the course of? Four and a half years. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So you're a smart guy. Kind of. Yeah. I guess, <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> Pretty dumb in others. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like most of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So I brought it up. We were in McKinsey River Pizza in Missoula, I remember, and I decided to to do the conversation like this, where I was like, so Sydney, um, there's this thing called polyamory that I'm interested in, and there's a girl in my calculus class that I have a crush on, which was obviously like a big grenade that I threw into the conversation. Um, you, you did so knowing that it would be a grenade? No. Oh. I just knew that I had to talk about it, and I didn't really know how to do it delicately. Okay. It was, it was just like, I mean, if you think about it, how could you not formulate that like a grenade in some ways? Like for a monogamous person mm -hmm. or like a monogamous relationship, if you bring up like, hey, I'm interested in other people, but I want to stay with you. It's kind of mine. Can we curse on here? Do you prefer not to curse? I can edit it out. Okay. You can beep it. <laughs> I was going to say it's a mind uh, F, right. F word, but. Um, <laughs> I think people get the point. Yeah, yeah. So I brought it up, and then we spent, like, the next year or year and a half maybe mm -hmm. um, kind of going over the pieces of that explosion and trying to piece it back together and figure out how we keep doing things. Um, Sydney used to get, and I don't think she'll mind me sharing, um, 
she used to get like big panic attacks when we talked about the stuff to the extent that she would like start shaking. Mm. Um, so we found that we had to walk, go on walks at night. Um, and it was also good for our conversation to just like keep it moving. Like if we were walking and smoking cigarettes and stuff mm. and it was nighttime, we'd be by the river. Um, it, things kind of flowed better. So you'd have to go on walks instead of sleeping. Go on walks instead of trying to talk, like staying in a room and talking, sitting. Mm. Like, oh, let's go walk this out and talk. And, okay. Um, so we did that many nights and tried to figure it out. But we got to a point toward the end of our stint in Missoula where I, I, I guess we didn't know what to do and shit was getting kind of desperate. Um, we didn't want to part from each other, but like it was also, we weren't really making a ton of progress in our conversations together and because you wanted one thing she didn't want exactly that she was in fact scared shitless of that thing yep she scared so scared so much she was having panic yeah, attacks yeah yeah so we from that position decided it was like a tearful event i don't remember if we were fighting or what but it ended with me basically like proposing to her and being like wow we should we should do this because where we were thinking is um like if sydney had a measure of security as a wife as yeah. my wife like she had a distinction over the other women yes then um she would have some security and i would have um some slack to go see other people too wow so we thought that that was a good idea wow yeah yeah pretty fucked well i'm sorry that's right. <laughs> yeah so um so you seem to have had a change of mind between then and now. About? About whether or not that was advisable. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it, looking back, it's pretty obvious. Okay. Yeah. But you couldn't see it at the time. Yeah, that's a fascinating question for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we had so much trouble imagining a life without each other mm-hmm. that we were willing to do almost anything to maintain a life with each other. So let me ask you, when you presented this thing to her, did you say you were at McKinsey River? Yeah. Yeah, all right. You, you, you dropped this this bombshell, right? Yeah. Was your idea, I'm going to tell her about this new thing because it's kind of a way of life among some other tribes, mm. some other folks, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to work on convincing her to explore that with me? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so um, my guess is that she would have felt strong-armed through that whole... Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so yeah, these this thing is a thing, and people are doing it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we have to do it. Uh, and you're like, no, but we should try. Mm-hmm. And she... It was more than that. What? I felt like I needed to do it. How come? Um, I don't know. It just felt like a need. Like, for a long time, I've just like noticed beautiful people and like enjoyed flirting with people and Sydney was cool with that like she's kind of flirty too um but eventually I got really sad like and noticed that I was kind of icing off a part of myself um because of expectations of a monogamous relationship where like if I was interested in somebody, mm-hmm. like I would see a, a path with them that like might be sexual sometime. And so I would know that that was a threat to my relationship. And so I would kind of disengage with them altogether um, because I knew that I wouldn't be able to get to know them on that level too. So to me, that felt like um, 
it happened a lot. Like there were a lot of people that I wanted to get to know, like however I, we needed to get to know each other. And like because of different expectations around sex with monogamy, like I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And that became like a real hurt for me. Like I was, I mean, I'm generally pretty lonely like and have trouble connecting with people. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm weird or what, but like if I sense a connection with somebody, it's really important because it's the diamond in the rough. Yes. And like for me to forego potential connections Mm -hmm. was very painful. So Mm. that's where, where my need felt like it was coming from. Um, just, just to be fair. Yeah. I guess just to, to, uh, voice the other side of Mm. this issue. There are a lot of guys who would like to be with people that they're not with. Yeah. And say no to that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of guys who say yes to it without becoming polyamorous. They just say, they just have affairs. Yeah, yeah. But you're not alone in wishing that you had a freedom that you have by virtue of a past decision foregone. Mm. Sure. In other words, the, yeah, yeah. the decision to be with one person is the decision to exclude the option of being with many. With others, yeah. But of course, pr- probably you, you're having come up within a monogamous context. Uh, predisposed you to assume that's how relationships are to be done. Mm-hmm. And so you were trying to do it that mm-hmm. way and within the midst of that discovered this ongoing frustration. Exactly. That you couldn't say no to or, mm-hmm. or no longer wanted to say no to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so take us from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, when did it when did it start to I, I'm guessing it precipitated the divorce? You were you were wanting to do this so much that she finally said I can't can't stay I can't stay here? We can't well, we so we entered the marriage on those terms. Which terms? Yes, we're going to be polyamorous. That we're going to try this. Wow. Yeah. Was she also wanting to be with other men? No. So she, it was basically just a. It's, they called a mono poly arrangement. But for your sake, she was willing to, at least try. Yep. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. For our sake or my sake or however you put it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. For the sake of her beloved, she was willing to deny herself and <clears throat> yeah. do this thing that seems hateful to her. Right. Like, psychologically, mm. I mean, at that level, mm-hmm. it was producing some degree of, I don't know if psychosis is the word, but um, neuroticism. Mm. Uh-huh. With the panic attacks. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but then flipping it with my new perspective... I also felt like I had been uh, denying a part of myself. Mm -hmm. And then, so as we worked with these things, we had like pretty strict rules. Like if I was going to talk to somebody or if I was interested in somebody somehow, I would have to tell her first, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. Um, But one of the other rules was like, if I was going to physically engage with anybody, I would have to check with Sydney. We would also have to... um, well, I couldn't tell anybody. We couldn't tell anybody that I was doing this. So um, you two were the only ones that knew about it. Yep, and we were the only two dealing with it as yeah. well. Wow. Which was very, very difficult. Oh, sure. Yeah, like not talking to our close friends about it because we were embarrassed or were you? whatever. Mm-hmm. So did you sort of see it as a, a handicap on your part where it's like, I have this thing that I have to deal with um, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it. But I Which s- thing? The desire to have sex with other women. Mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't say handicap. Mm-mm. I was excited about it. Well, so sure, there's there's an exciting element, but mm-hmm. if it's just exciting, why not tell people about it? Oh, well, because 
it's weird, I guess. Like, we didn't know okay. what our friends would think if they'd be, like, yeah. pissed at us and not want to be our friend anymore. Yeah. Or, um, which ended up being a thing. We lost friends as, like, we started telling people about what we were doing. Which, wow. which I guess we did. I, it, the part of some, some parts of it have become such a blur, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Go on. So, let's see, where, where the hell was I? Somewhere between polyamory and divorce. Mm. Yeah, so in the course of that, we moved back to Billings, got jobs. Um, I started working in a law office, which was like a, kind of an important thing for me. Where I, when I discovered I never wanted to have a boss again and like never wanted to work in an office again. Um, and just wanted to like do my own thing. Um, be an artist is what, kind of where I decided like all right not doing that anything like that like I'm gonna go full in on like doing my thing musical art yeah, yeah. or I mean I consider podcasting an art or like lots of stuff in art mm. talking to do, do you write um, not anymore I mean obviously I went to school for it but yeah. I don't know if I'm just taking a lot of space or what yeah sometimes you need that like yeah. I, I spent eight years learning how to play the piano mm. and grew to hate it so much mm-hmm. that I didn't touch the keys for five years. When I finally did, like we were able to have a new beginning, me and mm. the keys. Yeah, yeah. And I love it now. It's therapeutic. Nice. But man, I, I, space. Yeah, I needed that time. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I don't, I don't know how much further I just, I got, want to get to the point about, we eventually found that like this was just an untenable arrangement like um we re- we realized how dumb an arrangement it was like mm. we were pretty much got married on the assumption that the other person would change in our way that is as as common as the sunrise yeah but ours was like intense and like so obvious but it took us so long to figure it out and, and not that we're special, but it's, it's funny to look back on that and be like, man. Um, yeah, so we found that out, and um, something happened where she violated her rules. She ended up interacting with somebody um, and kissing them without checking with me before. And after that happened, I was like, all right, like, F your rules. Like, you obviously don't care about your rules. Like, I've been waiting two years like we've been talking about this stuff two three years and I've been waiting to like kiss somebody and then you went and just did it and so, you didn't even want this so up to this point even though two years prior you guys had been having this conversation you still hadn't been with anyone else nope what yeah yeah so you were making arrangements for mm-hmm. the possibility that you never took advantage of yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well because of how our how our rules worked out I couldn't Practically, you couldn't act access anybody. Like, I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't pursue any of our friends, obviously, in that way. Okay. Um, I couldn't be on Tinder. Like, I couldn't. I didn't really know. Why not? Like, why was Tinder? Well, because it's a public platform of some kind. Yeah. Um, I, I and mean, you were publicly married. Yeah. So that just created the possibility for people to find you out. Yeah. I, I mean, you can run into friends on there and stuff. Huh. Um. <laughs> so yeah, I and I didn't wasn't like gonna go out to a bar and just like alone to go meet somebody or mm. you know I mean, didn't know where to start so um, for that reason yeah it took Man. us all that time that's kind of like the stone that rolled back on you uh. here you are <laughs> right yeah. yeah trying to make it possible for yourself to do these things and then your wife jumps the gun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you were so hurt by that 
that you're like, we're done or what? No, I'm like, I'm on Tinder now. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just, I want to start telling people or I don't remember exactly how the rules got tossed out, but like, yeah. that's what it ended up doing. And of course, at that point, like she started to find security with this other person um, that she had met and I was cool like I was happy that she found somebody I was like wow maybe Sydney's like into this poly stuff now mm -hmm. um, and then of course like that also meant that like if she was out with that person like it was easier for me to go out with other people so I started like that's when I started meeting people um, and then I started like sleeping on the couch and mm. um, I was also training in jazz at the time um with my buddy Eric and part of our lessons weren't really even with instruments a lot of the time we just like go to the bar and talk like you can get a lot out of just talking with somebody about things um, so at the time I was focused on playing music I was trying to gig a lot and, and I was going out drinking a lot so I ended up being inattentive with Sydney in multiple ways where I was like seeing other people and pursuing this new career profession-y thing mm -hmm. um and eventually, how'd that go? Yeah, we just decided that we couldn't do it anymore, and it was too hard. And um, she found that, like, when she sort of, she couldn't really go between the two of us, like with me and then this other partner that she had started to developed. Hmm. Um, she had more of a monogamous impulse framework. Yeah, yeah. It seems like. Um, so we just kind of discovered the the depth of that like we weren't gonna change and like both of us had been expecting the person to change and mm -hmm. it just wasn't gonna happen so for a second I tried to live upstairs and we were just gonna like live together mm -hmm. but then I had like a girl over and with Sydney's permission um, and it was cool the first time but then again did upstairs it, meaning you guys had a duplex um, no we just had like multi Level. Uh, level house with the room upstairs. So you said you and this other partner were going to live upstairs? I didn't have, I wasn't going to live with another partner. I was just going to, well, so Sydney was going to live downstairs. I was going to live up and then we just kind of do our thing. Okay. And so I was trying to exercise that, like mm -hmm. brought over somebody. Sure. Um, and it was cool the first time. And then the second time it made Sydney feel really weird, mm -hmm. um, which is understandable mm -hmm. with like all these open wounds and feelings and stuff. Like, uh, so yeah, we just found it. We weren't gonna be able to live together, and that's when I got my own place and lived alone for the first time ever. Had my my own room for the first time ever. Oh wow! Too. Yeah. And are you still there? Yep, but I have a roommate now. Okay. Which is cool. Who's that? Uh, Brock Hell Albertson is her name. Raquel. Brock Hell. Brock Hell. Mm -hmm. Oh okay. Yeah. Oh, she's kind of a homie from way back, and she's dating a good friend of mine, Jordan Finn, who's a drummer. And mm -hmm. playing in a band with him so and that's your place over there on the north side right yeah yeah, yeah. so do you remember my dad's building a house yeah right across the street or the alley from yours yeah, yeah. I okay do. <laughs> um hmm so yeah that's what happened it well, was really messy do you mind if i um kind of share some related things from my own experience sure um one relevant data point <laughs> as opposed to a narrative yeah is uh that it was about a year into our marriage. My wife and I have been married now eight years mm -hmm. and, and a few months. And uh, we didn't really know each other when we got married. So unlike you guys who had been dating for a long time, we, we had like a couple months, fell in love, was like, hey, 
if I think I can trust this person, oh, wow. um, let me just propose to her. So I did. Damn. Um, but about a year in, we, well, we jointly discovered, and, and I was the first to actually verbalize this, is like, I don't like you. I don't like who you are. Oh. Yeah. Damn. I married somebody. Sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I, I, think it's, I think it's the story of marriage mm. for most people. Mm. At one level or another, acknowledged or unacknowledged, um, late or early, mm. you realize, I wish you, I wish you were somebody different from mm. who you are. But mm. so my, my philosophy has, for as long as I can remember, been the truth is better than a lie. Mm-hmm. So I thought as, as difficult as this is, as mm. unpleasant as it is to say, we will be moving forward if we start yeah. with the truth. So I said to her, I said, I don't, I don't really like who you are. <laughs> And that hurt a lot, I bet. but it, in time, and didn't take too long, it freed her up to say the same thing to me. Uh-huh. I don't really <laughs> like who you are. <laughs> hey, fuck you. So it's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> it was, it gave us a new place to move forward right. from, which was solid right. because it a was foundation. real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reality nice. was, okay, we don't like each other. Yeah. So what are we going to do? Mm. Are we going to part ways or are we going to figure this out? Hmm. And Interesting. it was the beginning of each of our journeys and learning how to love the person we were actually with instead of trying to wish that they were someone else mm. and turn them into that person. Mm. Because everyone knows that when somebody is trying to force you into a mold mm. that doesn't fit you, mm-hmm. it's not comfortable. Yeah, yeah. You revolt. Right. You want to get away. Oh, you, yeah. you medicate. You find some way mm-hmm. to numb the pain of being rejected totally right and so that happened about a year in Mm. and it gave us the opportunity to start to move forward but then um i i want to say year four or or five i I fell in love with somebody else Mm. right Mm -hmm. so there's that polyamorous inclination Mm. like ooh, i there's somebody I'd like to be with. Mm. What well? What am I gonna did, do? Did you spend time like when you say fall in love with somebody? Mm-hmm. You were friends with them, sort of, or you knew them? Like we worked together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Well, so the thing was like um, this was just one of many coworkers that I found myself in close proximity to mm-hmm. on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and at first there was no cause for concern because. She was just another person. Mm. Um, didn't really find her particularly attractive. Mm. But as we worked together and I saw her attitude and her character, her work ethic, mm. she, I started to think, oh, this person is really cool, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so in, in a matter of weeks, started like having feelings for this mm-hmm. person. And the feelings, as you know, are... V- are very agreeable like it's like <laughs> right yeah they're welcome feelings you like to feel that way mm. um but in, in my context i had committed to somebody else yeah. so as i began to recognize oh i'm attracted to this person mm-hmm. like i'm drawn to them in a way that's different from the way i'm drawn to other people mm. um i started to notice you know, i need to put the brakes on this ultimately told my wife in fact i wrote about it shared this with my wife, mm-hmm. broke her heart all mm-hmm. over again. Mm-hmm. And, but again, it was the truth. Like I didn't try to hide it from her. Mm-hmm. And so it was another thing for us to work through. And because, and she, I, I, I came to find 
years later, she had considered leaving me. Mm-hmm. And With, over that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like she was so hurt by it. She's like, "Am I going to be the fool who sticks around for this to happen again?" Mm-hmm. And so she prayed about it, asked God, "Should I leave him?" And in her telling, God's response was, "You can leave if you want to. Mm. Basically, that's on you." Mm. Um, you cannot offload your responsibility for your decisions on me, mm. on God. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and as soon as she realized that that was the case, that she wasn't going to get some sort of divine, Pass. yeah, mm. she was like, all right, all right I'm going to learn how to mm. love this guy right. that I really don't like right now. Mm. And she is wonderful. Mm-hmm. She is she is a beautiful person inside and out. Mm. And I'm really grateful to be with her. Mm. But I guess I just wanted to share that because yeah. even though we didn't divorce over it, we we and many other people who would never tell you about mm-hmm. it have these skeletons in their closet, mm-hmm. these stories mm-hmm. where it was like... And, and what I really don't like about certain cultures, some religious cultures, you know, some Christian groups is that they never do talk about mm. this stuff. And because they don't talk about it... It's mistaked. People make the same mistakes over and over and over again? Or? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and they're more vulnerable to making the uh-huh. mistakes because they feel like they're alone, can't talk mm. to anybody else about it, and so they're just drifting. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're... I guess it's, you know, it's like open season for affairs and adultery mm. because they're out in the open, you know, like sitting duck. Yeah, yeah. Just subject to their own feelings and right. confused about what to do and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to talk about this kind of stuff. And I know that because of the passage of time and healing that she's done, my wife is also okay with talking about this. Not comfortable. I think Ah. think that's a a bridge too far. Uh Maybe someday she will be. Mm. But um, suffice it to say, it's been been a difficult but... um, but real sort of marital experience Mm. for us to go through. Mm. Yeah. That's cool that you're able to bring it up. Yeah. I love that idea of a foundation of truth. I was going to say something that strikes me about your approach as I've listened to your podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, like what, when you have your kids pay for food, um, that's really fascinating to me. And you describe the system, it's, you know, it's like a nickel a meal or something. So mm-hmm. it's not ridiculous, but... Um, I appreciate like the ruthless uh, practicality you kind of have w- with your approach with things mm-hmm. where like in your marriage, for example, you found that you were in a situation you didn't like or, or something. Mm-hmm. You were in a position with somebody you didn't like and you were like bound to them on a deep level. Um, and you were still just like, well, I entered this contract like and I'm not, I'm not fudging on it, so I'm going to figure it out. And, like, even if that means, like, acknowledging that I don't like my partner, like, that's a big thing that most people wouldn't do. Hmm. Um, and that's pretty fascinating to me, like, because, I don't know, it's kind of funny, like, as we've talked and, like, when Don and I talked, I found out at the end of our conversation that he was a fundamentalist Christian, Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, we can obviously connect on a lot of stuff. And then you reached out to me. And I'm like, okay, like, here's another Christian. Like, I'm kind of into it. But <laughs> it took me a second to be like, 
listen to your stuff and be like, there's some something actually interesting going on. And he likes Charles Eisenstein. So I don't know. I wanted to give you a compliment and then also <laughs> just kind of explain how I think it's really nice for us to find these connections. Like it seems like you're in a mode that I am, which is just trying to be open, like a like a neuron or something. Um, in any direction able to make like a connection um yes because there's something much deeper about us than our disagreements of course yeah right which well, it that's which becoming is, apparent more and more too it's 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 obvious to to you and i but it needs to be said only because we live in a world that defines itself by superficial attributes mm-hmm. like as superficial as the color of your skin mm. in every other superficial ah. Right, so it's totally. like, why, why place precedence on those things that not only are ineluctable, mm. you, you can't choose what color you are, yeah. but also meaningless. Mm. So like, <laughs> our our humanity yeah. is, you know, ninety eight percent of who we are, and the other little things on the surface, mm-hmm. and we're gonna fight over the things on the surface. Right. I just I don't I don't see that. Yeah, 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 totally. But anyway, I'm just really happy to be talking to you. Cool. That's what I'm trying to say, too. So, um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm <laughs> glad we're talking as well. Um, any, anything more? I guess I, I would like to ask about polyamory. So yeah, what's, yeah. what's your story now, Yeah. today? What are you doing with that? It's really sick. Sick it, as in good? or it's awesome. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, it feels like I have like finally made it somehow like through the woods like after growing up as I did and like I, maybe I should underline that I did not see myself getting married ever hmm. because of my experience with my parents and my step parents and shit hmm. um, but then I found myself getting married and oh damn it Lost your oh so where I am now is like um, I have three more three partners mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. that um, one of them is in Bozeman um, and two of them are here one of them is on vacation now um, and another one who well one of the three like I don't we're still kind of in a weird stage. Like I, w- I wouldn't even call her a partner per se quite, but we're kind of working our way towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that, the reason for that is because she was who I was with right after my divorce. And so there, I ended up thrusting a lot of baggage from my marriage onto yeah. her and I'm not sure. processing it. Because like the funny thing about how the polyamory worked out is like my parents or grandparents would ask if I was like how long I had been seeing Sarah (laughs) and I would like kind of well like I was seeing her before we got divorced actually you tell them that well I tried to bring these things up like and slip them in and I don't know if they noticed them or not but eventually (laughs) I I was clearer clearer with them Um, so anyway today now I call myself like a relationship anarchist or an aspiring relationship anarchist um which I'm really fascinated in because it takes like part of my philosophy, which I kind of identify as anarchistic, um, and it allows me to exercise it like at least in one realm of my life. Like, 
as the anarchist today, you're gonna have a hard time because like it's a capitalist world and you usually have to get a job and you like have to follow laws and stuff. Mm-hmm. So in a larger frame, you can't really exercise your anarchism. Um, but within a personal context, you can. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that like um, I have trouble with labels, like partner even. Um, I consider like my bandmates a lot of the time, my partners, like my life partners too. Um, my best friends are in some sense my partners. Um, so that's kind of the idea of relationship anarchy is like leveling everybody and saying like, listen, as a human, you don't just have one person that, that like holds your life together. Like we are a communal creature and that means that we have a web of people that we draw on and that's pretty obvious if you look like um people have lots of people that they're close with but for some reason we project like this hierarchical structure onto it that says that your monogamous partner is the most important so Mm -hmm. anarchy relationship anarchy kind of stands in strong contrast to that saying like no there's not one person that like i would um give anything for there's a lot of people that i would give anything for and trying to emphasize that in practice to where um like if one of my best friends needs help like a jump or something my partner like one of my romantic partners isn't going to be mad because they understand that me helping that person is important too like if i had plans with my partner or something i had to be like oh sorry ty needs help Mm -hmm. oh okay like go help tie and it wouldn't be and maybe maybe that would work out similarly in like monogamous relationships but that's like a an example of Mm. an extreme example maybe okay so i don't know if any of that makes sense i was trying to give a little shot of so you have multiple partners today yeah they're aware of the other people yeah they're They're friends even they're okay with it Mm -hmm. they're just like and is the idea uh, forgive me if this seems invasive or crude but is the idea of I just want to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with and I don't want anybody to be able to tell me not to. I mean, how much, how dominant is intercourse in the relationship or, or some of these partners, people you're like, no, we don't have sex. We just go out to coffee and talk to each other. Yeah. That's, that's a funny thing It's like, we're trying to break down the indicators like sex as an indicator that somebody's your partner even, um, and that's what's kind of funny to try to translate between these different systems. Like one podcast that I listen to, it's a polyamory podcast. Their thing is it's not just about the sex is what they say. Okay. Like, because people are always putting that onto it. Like Because in a monogamous culture, that is where the emphasis is placed. Like if you sleep with somebody, you break your contract, right, mm-hmm. in most cases. And um, so for me, it's not just that like I want to have – sex with any anybody like it's that I want to do anything with anybody like whatever that relationship demands mm-hmm. I would like to be able to do that as long as it doesn't intrude on my other relationships or hurt other people hmm. so whether that means having sex with somebody or just like going like with one of my partners we've had sex one time but we've been talking and part of it is because it's like a long distance thing. Um, but we stay in touch and like I visit and I visited and I visited her without expecting to have sex. Um, 
but the possibility is there. So like, mm-hmm. it's kind of nice to not have to ice that part out. Like I was talking about before to mm-hmm. be like, well, just because this could happen means that I can't have any sort of relationship with you. Now it's like I could go. And if that happens, it's okay, Yeah. but it doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. And it's been how, really nice to explore those spaces. How often in polyamorous circles do do people that are getting involved actually fall in love with one another and say, now I don't want this to be open anymore? Mm. Uh, Maybe you don't have a sense of how often, but... I don't have a sense. Like, that's always... That's like a... That's a question. I'm sure, I'm sure it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, there there is the, the instinct to just procreate, mm-hmm. but there's also the instinct to be special mm. and to like to have exclusivity Mm. you know Mm. like wouldn't wouldn't you agree i think for some people that's the case but you're saying in in other words not for you no well and that's part part of the workaround is like redefining special like specialness isn't in contrast to other people like it seems like the exclusivity impulse is like uh kind of from a competitive mindset like i want you to like like my feeling of specialness needs to be signified by you agreeing not to like consider other people's specialness in the same way or something like you're saying you're saying that's not what you embrace but other people no yeah i'm trying to say like i've had to redefine my idea of what's special to be like what we have is special regardless of if you have a close connection with somebody else too. Well, sure, but and it's not in contrast to other, other things. So I'm I'm friendly to the idea that competition has its pitfalls. Yeah, like yeah. I'm really friendly to that right, idea. Right. But what what do you do with the the saying if everything is special, nothing is? Hmm. What about that? Well, I don't think everything's special. Okay, like but I don't. You're saying treat every person like they're a close partner of mine. So, but even you, you cannot escape the the, the structure of hierarchy. Uh, you still have some. Uh, some have a certain particular relationship to me, and others don't. Sure. I think what you're wanting to say is that all those others could, mm. right? Yeah. Like I'm open to that right. possibility, but. It just doesn't happen to be the case mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't have relationships with every person yeah, that you encounter. Yeah. So there, somebody's going to be special and others are not. Right. But you just want that somebody to be more numerous than mm. than one single person. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it already is. Like, most monogamous people, I hope, would recognize that there's something special about their best friend that makes them... Well, of them course. I mean, around. the fact that you even have to... That you feel you need to mm. delineate that distinction... Mm is curious to me mm. like my my wife doesn't expect me not to have any friends and yeah. she certainly doesn't ex- expect me to ignore them right when they have a need right just because she may have a hope yeah 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 like right. i i can hold those two things in tandem yeah and they both have their place if if my if my male friend who's just my friend mm. ha- is becoming so needy and dominant that it's affecting my marriage mm. i will tell him dude this isn't going to happen anymore mm. And, he, and then he has to deal with that because my allegiance and my my priority is with my spouse, mm. you know, the woman with whom I'm making a family. And really, the the important thing for me, or one of many, is that this is a woman who has given up all other 
possibilities in her own life mm. to do this thing with me. Mm. So like she's invested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I need to respect that investment mm. by reciprocating, mm -hmm. by showing her, hey, I see what you've done. I see what I see what you are sacrificing. Mm. And and I appreciate that and I'm with you in it. Right. And I guess I don't mean I definitely don't mean to paint like a straw man. Maybe I should go like from the other direction. One thing that scares the pee out of me <laughs> is that, um, like, I see a real trend with, like, Americans of a certain class, and it ends up being, like, what everybody wants. And maybe we can get into Marx here. Sure. Um, like, people now like but, it hey just a second yeah so we're, we're coming up we're coming up on an hour mm. um and we can't get into marks yeah but maybe do you wanna, can we take a break or yeah yeah is it just, so it's, any closing thoughts on polyamory um i think I, we should talk about it way more i'll, I'll probably refer back to that yeah but um, okay do so, you have any i didn't mean to see one thing that like just really quick yeah. here's a, a closing thought like one thing that i'm having to readjust in like just about every aspect of my life is that for a long time I didn't do what I wanted like I did what other people wanted me to do yeah and then I found myself in a situation where I was like thrust out into the cold like naked what do you felt mean? like when I got divorced like I went into a big drinking hole felt like more alone than I've ever felt um and like looked back and saw how I didn't choose my path for so long you let other people force you into yeah. it yeah yep and so now I have a big resentment um with like assuming that people or ideologies are trying to violate my autonomy all the time hmm. Um, so you, I, you seem to recognize that you may be overstating the case in your in your heart. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but it, right now it's literally like a still a fight or flight type response yeah. where like, um, and I guess I'll just go ahead and say like I have resentment issues with monogamy. Like I can't stop thinking about how messed up it is and like how it hurt me mm. and like that makes me. Um, or how, you know, of course, this is just how I see it. And yeah. There's, like, like, a level of me that sees that monogamy didn't hurt me, you know, and that doesn't mean that it's, like, a horrible system for everybody. But, like, I have real axe to grind, and, like, I'm not shy about it because I do think that there's aspects of these dynamics that are really, really harmful. Aspects and of monogamy. Monogamy or capitalism, like yeah, yeah. these expectations, societal expectations mm -hmm. that end up making people do things they don't want to do, much to your point of most people being married to somebody they don't like. Like, how the hell does that happen? Well, it, it, happens, it happens in part because there are aspects of every human being that are unlikable. Mm. Sure. Well, so what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you stay with any of these polyamorous individuals for long enough, mm. you will find things about them that rub you the wrong way. Sure. And then you'll be at the same impasse of yeah, like, what yeah. am I going to do? Am I going to drop them by the side of the road because yeah, I don't yeah. like this thing? Or am I going to learn how to work it out? Right. Right, right. There's no getting around that if you're going to be involved with human beings. Mm. That's how humans are. Mm. The other thing that, that you might need to learn for yourself, and it sounds like you're on this path, mm. is like, if I let other people push me around, I'm going to regret it. 
I'm going to be mad at them and mad at myself. Mm. So part of the thing is like not blaming the system that you're in. Mm. Part of part of the thing is knowing how to dominate your own your your how to pilot your own ship. Word. And be like, okay, yeah, I see what you guys want from me. I'm not doing that. Right. I'm not, and that's what you are doing. Mm. But in the process, you're like finding the need to to critique all these systems. Mm-hmm. The thing is like you can be free within a, an enslaved system. Mm. Like, you really can. Mm. One, one of the books that I would recommend is um, Man's Search for Meaning. Actually, mm. the last guy that I interviewed, Aaron Langford, mm-hmm. he mentioned this book, mm. and I've since listened to it. Yeah, yeah. One of the amazing things that you notice in the book is that this guy, and he's not alone in this, but, I mean, there, there are few and far between, mm. learned how to be free in himself in the midst of a death camp. Mm. So talk about, mm. you cannot imagine a more onerous, mm-hmm. enslaving environment. Mm-hmm. And even there, mm. he could be free. Mm-hmm. So if you can't be free in this capitalist system of like structural freedom, mm-hmm. that's not that's not the, pro- the, the fault of the structure. Mm. It's because you still don't know how to be free. Mm-hmm. Word. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm into that. Okay. For sure. But okay, I, 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 have, to, I have to touch on a couple yeah. other things yeah, with yeah. polyamory. Please. I have the, the question of offspring, mm. if a baby comes out, like, what do you do? Um, and there's one other issue, but it, it slips my mind at the moment. Well, first of all, babies don't just come out. So if you're on birth control, then you can control that, hopefully, right? Partially. Partially. Some, Sometimes babies still come out. Sure. Um, in that case, people end up um, having their partners raise them together, really. It becomes like a tribal type of thing, mm. um, which is where a lot of this stuff goes. And actually, like, I guess I could still talk a lot about kind of deeper theory around like prehistoric families. That's what I wanted to ask about mm. is if if your assumption is, and I think you've said as much elsewhere, that the human creature is more polyamorous by nature. And that's part of why monogamy rubs you the wrong way is because it's like going against your design. Mm, I would go that far. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. No. So like I I have this memory of seeing these three dogs humping each other in the park. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) Like they were stuck together. Have you, you know how this happens with dogs? They get on each other and then they can't get out. No. Yeah. Three of them. So it wasn't just like they were two. They stuck. Uh, A third one got in the mix and and got in and then they couldn't get out. So they're having sex. Yeah. Oh, and they get stuck. Yeah. With the penis in the vagina. Well, yeah. Or in the other other case, it wasn't a vagina; it was an anus. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really weird stuff. <laughs> okay. But in any case. Hell <laughs> <laughs> of a picture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's from my childhood. So anyway, I saw these dogs in the park, mm. and and that's I guess that's their approach to intercourse and relationships mm. you know there there there's no fidelity yeah yeah it's just get off on on the the, the next dog that's yeah, available yeah. to me right. apparently i mean is this is this the picture that you see being more natural <laughs> for humans um because listen i, I just want to acknowledge like i'm a sexual creature mm. and i recognize i fully appreciate the impulse to I think any honest person would yeah, yeah. to see somebody that's attractive and be like, man, it would be nice to be with that person, mm. to, to experience intercourse with mm. that person. Mm-hmm. Okay. I totally understand that. Right. And yet, does it take us to a good place or does it just 
mire us in an even more confusing set of relationships? Mm. Good question. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I just immediately, and I don't think that you meant this, but like the picture of the dog is like not the most favorable or the dogs is not the most favorable. Like there's not an indeterminacy about my sexuality. Like, um, even though my goal is to like have freedom in that context, like among others, uh, it's not just like I'm trying to have sex with the next pretty person like right away. Like I'm, that's another thing I'm finding about my sexuality is that I have to like get to know people before and get to know their mind before I can like Word. really get to because know you, their you, body. Because you're extremely rational. Mm. People, and, and I am too, mm-hmm. people like us feel there's some, some degree of self disrespect mm. involved in being indiscriminately yeah. open to right. because like you would you would probably feel like embarrassed by the prospect of being attracted to a bimbo mm-hmm. right yeah there's just there's something non i might take issue with the word but <laughs> bimbo yeah why is that just like a dumb girl or yes what? yeah somebody who doesn't have respect for themselves mm. who hasn't developed their ability to understand the world mm. you're not probably i'm guessing and i'm also confessing mm. not going to find that person attractive mm. no right. matter how beautiful they yeah, are yeah, you're going to yeah. look at them and be like yeah but there's some X factor. Can we talk? <laughs> yeah, could we talk? Yeah, yeah. And if we did, would I just find myself wanting to get, like, just walk away? Right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm only saying that, that I understand sure. it's not just about how she looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, going back, your question was about the dogs. My, my question is basically, is that the picture of human sexuality that you're trying to embrace? Mm. It's like, I have the inclination to have sex with this person, and if they'll have mm. me, then let's let's get it on. Sure. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Yeah, so Marvin that that's Gay. open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's get it on. <laughs> um, I think it is. I try not to say too much about, like, our nature, you know? Like, that gets dicey. Um, but it, it's really important, though. It seems important to think about somehow, yeah. Well, because do you think that we have a nature? Ah. Uh, I think that our nature is probably determined by lots of evolutionary like habits over many many years. But do you and think that human nature is a thing? Yes or no? More or less no. Oh, it's not even a thing. And that would be in line with your desire to sort of blur the lines between categories and definitions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You said it want to flatten out the world so that nothing really is understandable anymore um well i'd love to understand it i'm, I'm trying to understand but it. how can you understand it without categories and definitions mm. i'm trying to uh see this is my problem man like i'm an i'm a systems guy like i get like you said like obsessed with systems but then what i'm interested in is like an anti-system or of some kind but like because you feel like the system is evil something yeah or or just not effective as well like these categories don't work a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Maybe so. maybe it's like the categories themselves are misleading because they categorize things in a way that overlaps in a, the Venn diagram. That's it. And includes things that aren't part of that category. Right. So, so, so the categories don't work. You're not opposed to categories per se. No. You're opposed to the categories th- that are today. Mm-hmm. You feel like they, they don't do their job no. correctly. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, so <laughs> so we're at. Um, I need a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, good. I'm all wound up. <laughs> okay, you go have one, and then when we come back, we'll try to do marks. Sure. All right. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. I also just wanted to get on. This is my like uh, journalism thing where I just like to capture people talking. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's yeah, fascinating to me. I, mainly because I wonder what you think you will discover. Do you have some idea of... I don't know. Okay. There's like... I don't know. I always have this thing when I'm talking to people or when I'm podcasting, right? Like when we start talking, if we, if we have the mics off, if we get into something good, yeah. it's like, oh, I wish we had the mics going. Yeah. So my idea is just like have them going anyway. That's part of what got me into podcasting is that I felt like... Man, I've I've had some conversations in the recent past that I would like to have captured, mm-hmm. and they're just they're just gone. Right. And and yet there's also that issue of like, the ob the obser- the fact of observation mm. tainting mm. the final product. Right, right. You know, there's there's things that you just say off the cuff that cannot really be reproduced authentically mm-hmm. uh, on command. Well, that's why I have the mic rolling. Okay, <laughs> so we got it rolling. All right. <laughs> So yeah, um, you want to get back into it? Sure. Yeah. All right. So when we were talking last time, um, we finished up with polyamory. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we did any sort of exhaustive treatment, but mm-hmm. um, moving on from that, you were were moving towards some of the structural beef that you have that you find some critique for in Marxism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talk about capitalism. Yeah. Which is another one of my obsessions that I hate and love. Um, Marx, I think, is often misconstrued as a communist, which is like the first distinction I would make. Um, he wrote the Communist Manifesto, so that's understandable why. But if you're a Marxist, it doesn't necessarily make you a communist. Um, and I say that because as an anarchist, I don't like states. I don't like government. Um, and Marxism or communism in that sense is like a, a more rigid state even than capitalism probably hmm. or much more rigid okay so you see some worthwhile helpful critiques coming from marxist thought mm-hmm. but you yourself don't embrace uh, marxism as the seed of a, a different for, form of statism right exactly okay. so you're an anarchist mm-hmm. you would define yourself that mm-hmm. way anarchist I'm kind of realizing that yeah. so do you do you see um, the ideal state of man as living without any governance at all like no, no? okay I think more it has to do with institutionalized forms of government well yeah government is by definition an institution ah Maybe you could say bureaucratized or um, capitalized, like something. Okay, bureaucracy is a form of governance that has like clogged wheels. Mm -hmm. Can't get anything done because it's so self-serving that it can no longer do the thing that it was intended to do, which was serve the populace. Yeah, yeah. And like I would join you heartily. Sure. Like I'm definitely anti bureaucratism cool. if that's a thing yeah yeah no and I figure yeah. um, what I'm trying to make my way toward is again like an idea of government under like with a tribal setting like they don't have cabinets of, of papers to keep things in order like they talk and they have rituals or whatever organizational structures they do have but 
in all like from all intents and purposes it doesn't resemble a government to me like if you compare it to our government now like the government we have now is like a freakazoid compared to like that style of government well it's so it's um it's a far cry even from the the ideals of the men who founded it Mm. So it could be that like you're more on point with the founders of this country than than with what it has become. Sure. Um, then uh, they're they're probably I guess none of those guys would have defined themselves as anarchists, mm-hmm. but still they didn't intend to produce. And now this is my opinion. Mm. What has what has grown out of mm-hmm. uh, the institutions they created? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But they recognized man's need for government, like the inevitable arising of some authority structures within the relationships of man to mediate when people don't see eye to eye. Because mm-hmm. the other option is what? War. Kill each other or, or putting so much distance between you and the other mm. people group that you don't have to deal with them. Yeah, yeah. But that is just a limited strategy because mm-hmm. where are you going to go? Right, right. You're only going to go into someone else's territory and, th- mm-hmm. and then you're going to have beef with them. Sure. So anyway, I, I don't mean to, to interrupt too much. No, oh, yeah. W- w- so what's your ideal so, picture? I guess I'm trying to just initially like block against the idea that anarchists are like no rules animals, right? Like mm. um, when we hear the word anarchy on the news or whatever, mm-hmm. like um, if there's a big accident, you'll hear a newscaster say like, it was anarchy out there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the kind of anarchist I am. Like... Uh, that's a, that's a fair distinction. I think mm-hmm. most people will probably need to to hear you say that mm-hmm. in order to have the idea straight. Right. I've I've listened to a guy named Bill Bupert, mm-hmm. who is eminently respectable and so such an able communicator mm-hmm. that when he expounds on anarchism, you find yourself being like, maybe I need to look into this mm-hmm. more. It sounds like there's something there. Nice. Yeah. 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 And so his idea is like self sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Such, autonomy. Well, not not just autonomy, because autonomy is freedom, but self sufficiency is responsibility. Mm. I, I recently heard it said that oh, you know if we're going to have a statue of liberty on the east coast, we need to have a statue of responsibility on the west coast, <laughs> because these are two things that necessarily exist in tandem, and yeah. without one, the other becomes self destructive. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To me, when I say autonomy, part of having autonomy is having self sufficiency. Well, good, because that needs to be the emphasis. Yeah. You can preserve your autonomy right. if you're self-sufficient, right. but if you're only autonomous, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're b- without any responsibility, mm-hmm. you're bound to destroy your, your own u- um, utopia. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning this. <laughs> cool. Good. That's great. But um, yeah, so so Bupert's like, like idea is you teach your own children, you grow your own food, mm-hmm. you have your own guns so you mm-hmm. can protect yourself. Mm-hmm. What need does such a person have of government mm-hmm. maybe roads right you know maybe legislation mm-hmm. and so there's a, an extremely minimalized place for the government in the life of such people mm-hmm. but if people aren't going to live like that mm-hmm. if they're going to rely on other people to do their jobs for right. them to make ends meet and all this stuff well those people won't be able to live in the anarchistic utopia mm-hmm. they just they won't they won't be able to hack it. it's too hard yeah yeah so on the one hand they like they may want to conceive of it as just this this free-for-all mm. but really what that means is ah. you're free to take care of your own stuff yeah and if you don't do it no one else is going to do it for you so you're going to live in the dirt right that's a special kind of discipline 
Which one? Well, it requires a special kind of discipline. It really does. Yeah. It's, a, it's a whole life of mm -hmm. discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think largely we have lost conceptually the connection between freedom and self-discipline. Mm. Like they're so intimately connected mm -hmm. that you can't, you just, you simply can't even realistically talk about one without the other, mm -hmm. it, unless you're just going to be given to, you know, this fantasy, this unchecked fantasy that doesn't have to deal with the rigors of reality. Right. I think that's really, really well put. If there's something about today how we define our freedoms based on what we consume um, or what we choose. Okay. Um, it seems like that's like a much more passive and non-responsible form. Like, and of course, there's still responsibility built in because you need to be responsible to go to your job and like make money so that you could pay for things that you could choose, and your freedom is there. But it is kind of interesting when you said like discipline being your whole life of discipline. It's not like you show up to a job, punch in, and then you're disciplined for eight hours. And then you go home and you can kind of just do whatever. Like a real life is one where like you're doing what you need to do all the time. Yeah. It's way worse than, than the <laughs> other one. <laughs> or, or better too. It's, it's definitely better. Yeah. I, I say worse in terms of like from the perspective of the person who would want to harder. punch in and out. Yes, it's harder. Yeah. It's like it's not as convenient and luxurious as right. the person who's, who only has to be responsible for eight hours a day. Yeah, yeah. No right. way. Right. And honestly, even those people, like, their work life may have some semblance of sanity and organization, mm. but if they can, like, truly just punch out and mm. then go home and stay punched out, right. their home life is going to be in shambles. Mm -hmm. Right. Who wants to live that way? Mm -hmm. Nobody. The problem is people will be willing to live that way mm. in the interest of serving their own, well, on the one hand, laziness, like physical laziness they don't just want to get up and and set their house in order mm -hmm. but also a form of like intellectual hopelessness or intellectual um powerlessness and like mm. spiritual hopelessness mm. like the belief that things won't get better if i try will curtail all efforts mm. before they begin mm -hmm. it's like why why bother right right hmm so you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And if you're in the mode of just like punching out, then yeah, it's not gonna go. But so let's get back to Mar Marx. Marxism. Well, basically, I'm interested in hearing how you think Marx has a fruitful critique of <laughs> capitalism. Yeah, you didn't think he was. He said that much. It sounds like with your essay. Yeah, you read that. Yeah, I'll, I'll post that in the show notes yeah. for, for people that want. And um, no, yeah. honestly, it's it's a tiny little pamphlet, and you read it, and you find yourself going, "How could anyone have thought that this was worth like a worthy foundation?" Starting parties, political parties. No. Or, yeah. It, I mean, and then if you if you want to look at the the man's actual life, it's that much more embarrassing. Mm. Like, nobody should be following this clown. Mm. This guy was a an angry bum <laughs> he was I like to think of myself as an angry bum sometimes yeah well you haven't struck me as angry though maybe you are a bum the, the fact is like Marx was only able to live and write because he mooched off of Ingalls mm. like Ingalls was uh, the, the, the child of wealthy 
furniture manufacturers, mm. and they were able to bankroll, yeah. the, you know, these two guys fiddling around with their ideologies. Yeah, 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 right. What's respectable about Pretty that? sweet. Um, <laughs> sounds like a good gig, man. <laughs> well, it does if, if you don't mind, like, just leeching off people. Yeah. And, and he didn't mind. Well, but he would go to the library for, like, 12 hours a day. Did I'm, you know this? I'm not saying that he was sleeping this whole time. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that is this the sort of person who was like, yeah, like, I, I would follow you. I would emula- emulate you. Mm. I, I don't know. I like the idea of somebody who goes to, 12, to the library for 12 hours a day. Okay, but the only reason that guy can spend that time at the library is because someone else has built the library. Somebody else sure. is maintaining the roads, you know, all these yeah, things. Yeah. And so if you, at the library, come mm. up with a doctrine mm. that eliminates all the things that make your ah. library time possible... Ah. Well, you're, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're cutting off the branch you're standing on. Right, right. This is the trouble, yeah. But from that perspective, like, should we not criticize anything we're involved in? No, not at, we should criticize. I, I think th- that you would think that. Like, so my point is, like, this critical impulse is an important one. And if you follow it and you find big problems, like, do you just stop because you're standing on the branch? Or do you acknowledge that, like, maybe you're not even standing on the branch or maybe the branch is, like, not even supporting you, but you think it is? Or mm-hmm. these, like, different problems. Maybe um, there's another branch to stand on. Sure. And maybe that it's time to hope. get off this branch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm open to all those possibilities. Right, right. I just... So let's, let's so hear it. Marx, what I like about Marx, it's just really basic capitalism stuff. Um, how about you offer a definition of capitalism, just so we know what you're referring to? Yeah. Uh, well, to me, nowadays, capitalism is, like, everything and all around us. Um, it's, like, the framework that we walk on. Um, in that sense, it's, like, hides from us easily. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanisms of it are supposed to do that, like, for the sake of efficiency or something. It's not just that. It's that you would find that all all cultures are answerable to that description. They're like the the water the fish is swimming in. Mm-hmm. The fish doesn't notice that there's any water. Sure, but it's there's definitely there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just setting it up like it's kind of harder to find um, because of that. Like because we're in it all the time, it's hard to see and hard to talk about. Um, because like I want to say. Um, can we move on from the definition? I don't want to. I can't give a def- definition of can, capitalism. Can right. I try to offer one? Yeah, and you can disagree with this if mm-hmm. you like, but I think it has something to do with the right to own the means of production. Mm. So, in other systems, private citizens are not allowed to own the rights of the means of production. Mm. The state owns that right. Mm. That would be obviously socialism or communism. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But so the capitalist system is the one that says a private citizen sure. can have his own business and is entitled to the fruits of that business. Okay. So that, is that fair? I think on one level, yeah, but what's confusing to me is that like socialism and Marxism use they use uh, devices of capitalism too. Like um and indeed like Marx draws out how uh Socialism will come after capitalism and communism will come after socialism. But the important point is that capitalism sets up it, like fairly efficient um, infrastructure 
so that socialists could come and use that for the people and communists can use it even more for the people, I guess. So when I get confused with these things as an anarchist who doesn't really like any of these things, I identify all of them as capitalism because they're still using mm. a system of exchange and property. Mm -hmm. um, you don't believe in private property? No. Really? I think it's bad. Uh, bad to exist or, or bad for any individual to own something? I think it was like the beginning of agriculture 10,000 years ago is when like our ships started going down and private property had to do with that. Our ships started going down? You mean metaphorical ship or like ships in the ocean? Our metaphorical ship. Okay. Right now I think of ourselves on a ship that is going down. It's going down. Mm -hmm. And it started 10,000 years ago and I think it started with private property in part. So you don't believe in theft? Well, I think theft happens. Well, how could it happen if somebody wasn't entitled to own something? Well, I'm not sure how I'd parse that, but. But I mean, if we're going to talk about this, you have to, you have to have some means of so understanding. So today, these I understand that people take things from other people if they need them or if they want to do something with them or whatever. Yeah, for and who knows why they take it, but they yeah. they take it. And we call that theft. Is that wrong? I don't know. I'd have to look at each case and, and see what was going on. Well, what if you have a car, right? Mm -hmm. so what if somebody drove off of while, while we're having this conversation? Yeah, I'd be pissed. But, but you wouldn't be ready to say that's wrong? Uh, no. How come? Because um, I don't know. I didn't really... I, I don't feel like I did that much to deserve that car. And like, if that person needs it for whatever reason, like... I guess they, they're just going to take it. Well, yes, they may, but are you advocating a system in which that would be the norm? Just I'm advocating a system where somebody wouldn't need to be driving around in a death box at all. What would they do instead? Ride around on a bike or something? Yeah. Okay. Wait. But my, my point is, I don't know, like... To me, theft doesn't apply, really. Like, it's a it's a... I'm not sure. Okay. All right, go on. Yeah. Go on. Um, so with Marx, I guess we could just talk about, like, the basic rule is follow the money, and that's, like, a really powerful rule. Um, and it's a rule that, like, some capitalists know, but some forget, I think. Um, what does it mean? To me, it just means that, like, in a system based on money, then you can draw out important structural features by following money. Yeah, to see who gets it and where it ends up. Yeah, just power power structures, right? Mm -hmm. So it's nothing that fancy. Um, and maybe Marx isn't even that fancy. Uh, and I don't know why... I don't really know why he was that special, but he did articulate this system that seems to describe how the world works in a really fundamental way. So... Uh what I would like to say in response to that is what Marx did and what anyone can do mm. is attempt to describe a system from a perspective that puts a lens on that system that helps you to see something that, that may or may not be helpful to see, mm. but it helps you to see it in that light. Mm. And what Marx did mm -hmm. and many since have done is cast the world in an inherently divisive lens. Mm. It says, 
because his his whole shtick was all of history is a picture of power struggles yeah. defined by the economics of that era, mm-hmm. right? So that these people are against this people yeah. because they're all just trying to get as much power as they mm-hmm. can, right? And so that's one way to look at history. Mm-hmm. I totally grant that. Right? Is it a helpful way to look at history? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's an incredibly, endlessly divisive way to look at history. Mm-hmm is to see the us and the them. Mm. They have, so we cannot have. And that orients me to be disgruntled, angry, and, and probably to attack them mm. because I feel justified mm-hmm. in getting back what they have stolen from me. There's right. there's the theft again. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. right. Uh, so do you not think there's an us and them? There is any us and them that you care to conceive of. But if you think that that is the only or the highest order, the highest manner in which to conceive of the thing, you're just, it's, it's just another form of racism. Mm. It's financial racism. Mm. It's Classism, a, yeah. Yeah, it's a worldview that sees, that sees the difference instead of the similarity. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, forget our common humanity. You have money and I don't, mm. and that makes you my enemy. Mm. How, how is this going to take us anywhere worth going? Sure. So, I do think there's a real us versus them today. Who is it? Billionaires. Okay. I think uh, billionaires approach, like, an inhuman form of life, essentially. Because of their opulence. Uh, and not that I don't think that their lives have value, or I don't, like, at all endorse, like, killing billionaires, but... There's a real thing about what happens when you get a lot of money that makes you different from other people. Different, and of course it does. And I mean, it, it makes you have a different bank account, but... No, 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 but it has um, physiological effects, too. One of my favorite um, articles I read in the last couple of years, the title of it is Power Gives You Brain Damage. Okay. Um, and so they had a study where they measured people's brains, huh. and um, they found that people with high amounts of power had their, basically, their ability to sympathize with other people and that part of their brain atrophied. Wow. Um, because they don't have to worry about it anymore. But if you're a servant, like, so I always think of it in, like, a kingdom or, like, a court, right? Sure. Um, so if the king is powerful, he does whatever that he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a servant in that case, like, you have to navigate through all these people to bring the king and the queen to dinner. And if the king is pissy, then you need to figure out how to do it without like having him yell at you or whatever. So you need to go and navigate all these people, like you know that jerk boss who you have who's like making you go, and then you have to like go by this other servant who you're mean to or they're mean to you or whatever. And then you finally get to the king and queen, and then you have to navigate that. And through that, you have to use this part of your brain, the sympathy brain, to read subtle cues on people's faces to see where they're at emotionally, if they're gonna snap on you. If you're a king, you don't have to do any of that. You just sit, you get your food brought to you, blah, blah, blah. You make orders and they're made. And that apparently has a real effect on your brain. I don't doubt it. Yeah. So in that sense, like, if we look at people like billionaires with all their money, they do resemble gods. And Wait. How do you get from brain damage to gods? So if you have, if you have uh, like, billions of dollars, you kind of basically have infinite money now it seems like like that's you could do whatever you wanted if you have billions of dollars it seems like and from that perspective you're a god but it's strange to me you're, that we wait, have just a second you're a god to yourself in your own eyes or you're a god to everyone else you're a god because you have power to do whatever you want okay 
just about. I mean, d extremely limited godhood, but mm. but I guess if you want to call it a, a, a type of god, yeah, I would say go it's that. a type of god. I use that loosely. Yeah, I mean, they're not immortal. Mm. Right, but they might be. They're working on that, too. Well, they're working on it, but again, I mean, they're not. Mm. And whatever versions of immortality we may come up with mm. through technology could just be, you know, another a, a technological form of hell. Mm. Like I agree. Perpetual existence in a place that no one would ever want to be. I, I'm just saying, we don't know. That's, an un, that's a question mark. But put it this way, like, capitalists have destroyed the earth. So, like, I wouldn't put it past them to come up with Im immortality somehow and then make it work for them. Okay. <laughs> but I interrupted you. Yeah. So, so these guys have this God complex. And they don't have any sympathy because they don't have to. Okay. So that's really scary to me. And as I see it, um, like, I talk in these stark terms, like, based on my environmental research, which, I, which I've been pretty into in the past, like there might not be fish in the oceans by 2050 um there will probably be a brown sky in the next 100 years because we've put um sulfides into the atmosphere to try to block out sun and like if that's the picture we're looking at uh also water is probably going to be a hot commodity in the next 100 years or 200 years and that's pretty terrifying to me drinking water yeah to the extent that like and this is, this is why I'm okay with an us versus them framework in one instance, is because like, at this level, if you're a billionaire now, and even you're a millionaire now, I think it could mean the difference between having like a drinking well in 200 years or not having access to, to a water supply. So in that respect, if you're not a billionaire today, mm -hmm. you might consider yourself like a homeless person, like, or a serf, like to take it back to kingdom terms, mm -hmm. kings and serfs, yeah, yeah. like that's the binary to me because billionaires are so huge and so powerful that the rest of us are just fighting over scraps. And that's like where this ideology stuff comes in is because it makes us think that we're on different teams, but we're not, we're all on the same team. And which team are we all on? The team of the serfs. You're saying all of, all of the non-billionaires are on the same team. And what different teams do we all think we're on? Liberal, uh, Christian, conservative. Oh, okay. And any ideology, Marxist, anarchist. Okay. Any ideology. So, we, so if you think that there will be an existential risk for people who don't have millions of dollars, wouldn't that be a good impetus for becoming wealthy? Not million, billions. I said billions. Well, you said both. Yeah, but I think that not even millions of dollars will make you safe. Okay, so you have to have billions. Well, so I guess I'm saying, would your advice then be do everything you can to become filthy rich so that you can have water? Or what, what's your advice? My advice is to, to try to find a life raft and some friends and see if you can hack it. Okay. But it's pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. I guess my thought on that is like if – if the masses of humanity, if 99.9% if .9 of human beings are obliterated because we create an, uh, an environment that can't sustain us, well, the few people who do remain will have meaningless money because who are they going to spend it on? And like, who are they going to give it to mm -hmm. to do their bidding? Mm -hmm. There won't be anybody left except other rich people. Mm -hmm. I mean, as if that even made sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. isn't the money that produces the clean drinking water. Right. It's the people that are doing the work. Yes. 
and if those people are eliminated by anything, the the billionaires will have to, you know, purify their own water. Yeah. Or die trying. I don't understand what they're doing. Who's that? The billionaires. billionaires. What, what do you mean? They're just operating according to their the shallow worldview. Mm. And sure. I and I say shallow, assuming that money is the rationale for their existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, as if life were, as if money were the point of life. Mm-hmm. If they think that, they're bound to be miserable, no matter how much they have. Right. Well, and this is the point. Why don't we all give up on this game? Like, it, billionaires, in fact, seem to be like some of the most unhappy people. Like they're the busiest. Um, I think a lot of them are checking into drug rehab or some kind of rehab a lot of the time. Yeah, and you don't have to be a billionaire to have problems with drug issues. No. So it isn't the money that causes the issues. It's the sense of meaninglessness, mm-hmm. no matter how much money you have. Mm-hmm. You're bound to try to medicate. And I think that's because we are, by nature, moral creatures. And if we find ourselves without a reason that's mm-hmm. worth getting up for, mm-hmm. we have to manufacture one. Yeah. And that could be ambition, but it also could be medication. Mm-hmm. You know, it could totally. be pills. Right. Or a cigarette in the morning. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, is, is a cigarette worth getting up for? Mm, no, but you could jerry-rig it together with this other shit. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, let's see. I don't know where we're at. Yeah. Critique of Marxism, capitalism. Billionaires. So I just see this money game playing out that way, and I like playing the game that way because it makes me see way more in common with people than than different like if I see us as all like scrounging for water in the next like put us 50 years forward if it's Mm -hmm. really bad and stuff goes really bad Mm -hmm. like it could be that like then that puts me at a way better level to try to understand people and meet them where they are instead of looking for ways to get mad at them or or divide myself from them Mm -hmm. so let me ask you this if we did find ourselves in a situation where there was a water scarcity Mm -hmm. do you think the billionaires would be instrumental in figuring out a way to get clean water. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think they would too. I do. I think they would, if, if it came down to it, they would see that their interests were bound. But I, I don't, like, something I notice about capitalism is, like, it, it'll make a mess and then shore up afterward. But that's not capitalism. That's human nature. Sure. My point is that capitalism does that for the sake of further tightening its grip. On on what? Resources? Yes. Control? Mm -hmm. Other people? All of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So, like, in that instance, if there's a water shortage and rich people, billionaires, like, helped solve it in some sense. They would just be serving their own self-interest. Yep. Ultimately, and it would probably just put them in a better position... Well, that's because that's because they're not only powerful, but they're smart. Mm, right. But so, but what you are you going to get there from being dumb? What are you going to do about that? Mm. If you if you eliminate the extant billionaires, someone else will take their place mm. because they will be smart mm-hmm. and wealthy, and they will become more wealthy mm. if that's their goal. Mm. There's there's no getting away from that. It's just it's part of how people how are. It works. It's just how people work, mm-hmm. and that's why that's why I say it's it's a fundamental issue to identify mm-hmm. what is human nature, mm-hmm. because if we if we blame the systems and find that we can't change the systems without eliminating the people, 
well, then we really have our answer is, oh, it's the people. Mm. And it's not just those people. Mm. It's, I would have done the same thing. Yes, right. So then should we kill me? Right, right. No, and that's a great, great point I have. And like, it's not that we're very different from billionaires at all. Like, it's just that they've happened into a position like that where stuff lined up and they did the right work and it, mm-hmm. and it really worked. So I'm not even interested in otherizing myself from billionaires. Hmm. Um, I would say at, at either end of the financial spectrum, you can find things that are indicators of the nature of this system. Mm-hmm. At the one mm-hmm. end, you find the billionaire. At the other end, you find the homeless. Mm-hmm. And it's just the case that it is symptomatic of the systems in which we live, that they are creating those two groups. Mm. Not just those groups, mm. but I'm just saying, those are two extremes mm-hmm. of the financial spectrum. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, how is this happening? Mm-hmm. How is it that some people are so disillusioned with this system that they check out, mm-hmm. and others are just so successful mm-hmm. that they rise to the top? Mm-hmm. And that if you knock those guys off the top of the mountain, somebody will take their place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is there any getting away from that? I, I don't really go into the business of solving problems. <laughs> but you want to critique them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you want to... Or at least these big problems. These are out of my hands. Like, so I try to think about them and critique them. But as far as solving them goes, I don't have a lot of hope. Okay. Well, so uh, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. If capitalism is uh, the great Satan, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the, the source of all of our problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what do you see as a good replacement for it? Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't have one. No, like, okay. Capitalism has messed stuff up so bad at this point yeah. that I would not even know where to begin or reorganizing. Yeah. The reason I ask the question is because it is possible. I'm not saying that this is the case. It's possible that capitalism is the best that we can do. Mm-hmm. Well, it's making it out to be that way, too. I'm not, I'm not just echoing its own claim about mm-hmm. itself. Any system can say this is the best we can do. Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting, for your consideration, the possibility, what if this is the best we can do, mm-hmm. given our limitations? Mm-hmm. The limitation mm-hmm. of our nature, the limitation of money itself, mm-hmm. man's tendency to corrupt mm-hmm. through power mm-hmm. and to use money in ways that not only corrupt himself but destroy the money. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what... I mean, what if it is? I guess it doesn't. I won't accept it, I guess. It's too shitty. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's good. Yeah. I think that's good Mm. because if it can be improved, then it ought to be. Mm -hmm. And I guess you just have to have big enough balls to actually attempt to implement Mm. a change. Mm. So my dream would be like to start a commune sort of thing with all my closest friends, partners, or whoever, and just live there and figure out a way that none of us have to, or we have minimal involvement in, like, the workaday life um, so that we have a chance to kind of work with each other uh, through our, like, immense mountains of trauma, I think, would, mm. be, would be a good picture. One, you t- I was listening to a podcast that was a, utopia podcast and one picture of it was just that in a utopia like say that where robots are taking care of labor humans would then finally have the time to just like spend time with each other and go into like full-on therapy mode together Hmm. and to me that's a really beautiful picture um 
So that I guess that's an alternative, but as far as governments go or like bigger structures, I don't know. Yeah. So your sense is that you and, and many like you have been so traumatized by this system that what you really need is several decades in which to just deal with that trauma. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably right. And, and you use the word beautiful, so that's probably a nice segue into mm. some Eisenstein's yeah. thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because he, his, the title of his book is The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. A little bit of a mouthful. It's a mouthful, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a long title. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's a worthwhile book. Yeah. Yeah, and his his even that title. I think there's good reason. Like he's a smart guy. He, is. he chose that long title. I think that's like my main project is trying to figure out a wedge where in my mind or in reality or whatever it is, where like I have a sense that there's a there's a, a world out there that I actually want to live in. Hmm. Um, or th there could be. There could be, but. Like, because of how our mind works or because of capitalism, I don't know. Like, it seems like those possibilities go away. And, like, your main job is if you can find a wedge to, just to get a little bit in there, then you could do anything. But you have to have that possibility. But, like, something I worry about with capitalism is that it just does away with alternative thought, essentially. Like, if you're not falling in line, then it discourages that a lot of the time. Well, that may be, but some of the alternatives to capitalism have not only discouraged it, they have made it illegal. Mm. So is that any better? Sure. I, just like on a personal mode, though, like drawing a line and being like, I'm not going to be a capitalist at home or whatever or with my friends. Yeah. Or, that's what I'm really interested in is figuring out these boundaries where – like, when is it appropriate to behave like a capitalist and when yeah. is it not? That like, is a great question. When you're driving around and you're trying to get your shit done, that's when you behave like a capitalist. But if you're dealing with your partner at home, like, it might not be the best idea to treat them like somebody in traffic, like somebody who's in your way. Like, you're trying to work with them. Right? Absolutely. So I'm just concerned with, like, the ways that capitalism has gotten so deeply ingrained in us that we don't notice when, when we're thinking along those lines. Oh, man. And then you end up treating people like that. Okay. It doesn't work. Well, so let me just, like, get on board with you. Mm. Because I definitely think the lens of capitalism is not sufficient mm -hmm. for all of our human needs. Mm -hmm. It may be the best we can do in the market. Mm. But if we import ah. that thinking right. into our relationships generally... Mm -hmm. It would be catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I would just say, to the degree that we're doing that, we are destroying our relationships mm -hmm. because we are conceiving of them mm -hmm. as zero-sum games, nice. as antithetical. Boom. Your success mm -hmm. is my failure. Yep. Okay, that's a terrible, terrible with way to partner? look at life. Fuck, yeah. Well, I mean, with oh. any other human being. Oh, sure. However special they yeah, are to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then right. now, like... You're pitted against each other all yes. of a sudden. Yeah. Okay, so don't, right. for a minute, hear me advocating that worldview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying this is how we do things in the market, mm -hmm. for better or worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it could be better, and if so, how? Mm -hmm. But maybe, but we know for certain mm -hmm. that it could be a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So let's not do the worst things in that domain. Mm -hmm. Within your own relationships, mm -hmm. like, that, that's part of the reason I'm not on social media, mm -hmm. is because if you don't have a corrective module for importing a different way of thinking about life and relationships, than capitalism, mm. you will, everything in your whole existence will be competitive. Ah. So it's like, right. look at my life. It's so much better than mm -hmm. his. Well, okay, if, if that's what you're calling capitalism, mm -hmm. which I, I think is 
an impoverished worldview, mm -hmm. one that doesn't see the fullness of humanity, ah. has no spirituality, mm -hmm. doesn't believe in being accountable to God. Right. Well, what do you expect? Uh -huh. That's what people are trying to do. They're trying to find meaning and they're looking for it through the only lens that they have. And right. maybe they're just so closed mind right. that they can't imagine another lens. Sure. So they just accept what they've been given. Yeah, yeah. The thing that is constantly marketed to mm. us, mm. you know, through everything from, from our entertainment mm -hmm. to our diversions, mm -hmm. to our pursuits, to our jobs. That's, that's what we live and breathe. Right. I don't live and breathe that. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't look at capitalism and, and say, how dare you deny me of this other level of meaning? I'm like, mm. it's not within their ability to give me that mm. meaning. I can't get it from them. They don't have it. Mm -hmm. I must get it mm. somewhere else. But capitalism would want you to think that you have to get it from... Capitalism doesn't... Capitalism wants my money. They will do whatever they have to do to try to get my money. Yes. Now, I am not a fool enough to say I have to give them what they want. Mm. So all I have to do is recognize, oh, that's what they want. Do I have to do that? No, I don't. Mm. I'm not gonna. Sure. Done. Yeah, yeah. But it's trickier, right? Like, part of. And let me see if I can grab on. Yeah, go ahead. So you you say that you have a healthy relationship with capitalism. It sounds like. Ish. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you have boundaries with it. Definitely. Right. So this is something that I don't think anybody even has time to think about most of the time. We have enough time to watch eight hours of TV a day. We don't have time to think about our relationship to capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Mm -hmm. Because it's so dominated by capitalistic yes. pursuits. Yes. Okay. So I, this is I, this is why I'm so insistent and kind of an asshole about like capitalism and monogamy. Okay. Is because I see them intertwined, and I could talk about that some other time. But like, um, basically, the idea is that these systems of property, greediness, owning things, whatever, like, they tend to be so, um, like, self. In, involved and like self-confirming self-confirming that most people have a lot of trouble doing what you do which is like saying like f you capitalism mm -hmm. i can get other things outside of you because so, we're supposed to be on our phones you're right like feeding into this thing and yeah. thinking that you can get everything out of this freaking phone but you can't it's really dumb it's really dumb but like so i'm just kind of allergic to these things like Good. capitalism like and that's probably why I'm such a dick. Again, like... Uh, I don't think you are. I, I think anybody who takes life seriously enough to notice some of the things that we do are hurting us mm. and calls that out mm. is the opposite of an asshole. That's what I would hope, yeah. I think that. I mm -hmm. really think that. Mm -hmm. I think we need to tell the truth as often as possible mm. in a way that is loving and empathetic. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Some truths, though, man. How do you say... I mean, I guess you, you talked about saying some hard stuff before. Like, one thing that I was working through... Um, I did, like, a little mushroom therapy with some friends. Like, I've, I've messed around with psychedelics, and I like to use them kind of to explore my psyche and see where I have blocks or <laughs> anxieties or whatever. Um, one thing that I had a lot of trouble kind of realizing, but I realized on in this session, is that... At least where I have been, I'm, I've been feeling better the last few weeks. Good for you. Um, like not depressed, but my general mode is like hating everything, mm. like um, seeing how horrible this system is, and like how it's not serving a lot of people, and like seeing how bad it works 
at doing that job is just like endlessly painful for me and then to notice like how isolated people are how we're all just driving around in our cars when we could just be talking to each other like seems like a basic little view like vision so i see these things and i get really sad and i feel like i'm in hell and like at any given time if i'm in that kind of mode it's really hard for me to share that with somebody to be like right now with you i feel like i'm in hell but it seems like acknowledging that truth mm-hmm. for me was like a big one to recognize that like my sadness wasn't personal. Like it didn't, cause part of why I didn't want to share that with somebody is because like it means that they, they can't do anything about it. Like when I feel like I'm sitting in hell, like with you, like, I mean, to emphasize that, like, it means that you're not really doing anything to like m- make me feel feel like I'm not in hell in some sense like so I'm to blame for for, for like being complicit in the creation of, of hell yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And I, I think that would be kind of true mm. what would that it's possible for us to be in hell together and for it to be a co-creation yeah I think it happens all the time <laughs> and for but, neither of us to be taking any steps to make it mm, less hellish mm, mm. yeah 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 because why would you if you've been sold the belief that this is as good as it can get, mm. and you haven't questioned that, mm-hmm. then you don't know that you're in hell. Right. You think this is mm. this is what life is. Right. Right, right. You don't have any corrective for that. One of the things that yeah. I try to do that's just this tiny little thing to pull us out of that that state of isolation. Mm. When I'm at the climbing gym, for mm. example, I'll go up to somebody and I'll say, "What's your name?" And without fail, they'll look at me like kind of out of this haze and be like, oh, another human. You know, oh, you know, like, hey. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll start a conversation. Right. And also without fail, it's almost always good. Just like they're open to it. Mm. They're glad somebody reached mm. out to them and broke that barrier. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think it starts out that simply. Right. Well, you talk about being in a hell and not knowing it. Somehow this happens like in relationships between two people like one person like in sex or with a favorite relationship like with a position one party will think the other person likes a certain sex position um or an activity and the other person thinks that the other person likes it too and so they both keep doing it but neither of them actually likes it they just do it for the other person Mm -hmm. and that seems like a kind of special kind of hell like that you don't know you're in if you're like doing something you don't want to for somebody else Mm -hmm. but they're doing it for you but no neither of you is gratified by it yeah it's perfect um or with a restaurant like if there's a restaurant you don't like but you go because you think it's your partner's favorite restaurant Mm -hmm. and they go because they think it's like one of yours and you've just been going for years people do this they'll go for years and then they'll finally be like Oh, you didn't like that? I hate this fucking place. Like, something <laughs> will happen where they finally see each other there, and they're like, wait, you were here. And, ah, yeah, anyway, that does seem hellish, but it's funny, too. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, like Jordan Peterson says. Mm, I was going to wait for him to come up. Yeah, yeah. But this, he says something very apropos here. Mm. Each of us has the option to tilt the world a little bit towards heaven or a little bit towards hell. Mm. And each of our decisions mm. has that effect. Mm. And if we don't acknowledge that, if we're not aware that I'm tipping your experience and my own a little bit more toward hell, or, mm-hmm. then I won't engage with that decision actively. Mm. I'll just let it be what it is. And oftentimes what it is is sort of entropic in mm. that it, it slips down the rungs to, mm-hmm. the, to the least common denominator. And usually that is 
the isolation of being comfortable but not so not actually um, happy mm. but comfortable you know in my own in my own little hell mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so as each of us takes steps to move away from that and tilt it towards heaven yeah, life yeah. gets better that's nice yeah I like the tilt idea too me too gradual small or like the wedge yeah uh, okay maybe yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so do you think so Eisenstein for people that haven't read this book, yeah. his his um, way of looking at the world is that there are two basic stories, the story of separation and the story of what he calls interbeing. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. The story of separation is what you're talking about mm-hmm. as capitalism, mm-hmm. the us-them narrative. You know, good for them is bad for me yeah. or us. And uh, the story of interbeing is one that recognizes how we all sink or, or float together. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you care to expand on that, or would you like to get into his thinking from some other angle? Uh, no, I think that's a good angle. Yeah, did you have more like an, uh, more to say about it? No, I just or wanted just to just want to open the door going. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I'm just like more and more trying to embrace an inner being story, and I'm finding that um, as I do work with polyamory or relationship anarchy and find like jealousy um that's a big divisive one mm-hmm. and it's obviously or pretty obviously like a greed related to greed somehow or like trying to own something um it's been really helpful for me to like rethink everything like in especially like intimacy in this regard mm-hmm. where um if one of my partners has great sex with somebody else, I don't think of it as a threat to me. I think just like, ideally, like, oh, I'm glad my partner had a good experience because I love them and I want them to feel good. Hmm. Like, when they feel good, I, I feel good too. Hmm. In fact, you can get to a point where like, you hear about great sex and it does make you feel good. You're like, man, that was that's sweet. Like, At least somebody's having it. Yeah, I, I like great sex, right. <laughs> so, um, going at these things that way, seems to be helpful and I'm kind of liking where it's going nice yeah yeah I mean it seems to me what your mention of greed mm. that is a contravention of the 10th commandment mm. do you know the 10 commandments yeah not in order that's okay but the 10th one is not to covet right the idea is yeah. it's it's exactly that mm. don't don't be envious about what other people have right it's not only is it going to ruin your day it's going to mm. make them your enemy mm. It's like that is, mm. so to get back to Eisenstein, mm-hmm. he talks about the worldview of scarcity mm-hmm. and the worldview of abundance. Right. So the, the covetous person is seeing the world as a, a place of scarce resources. Yeah. Like there's only so much good sex to, to go around. Right, right. If those guys are having good sex, well, that just means that I'm not. Right. It, it like highlights my awareness of my deficiency. Mm. Totally. But it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. The, there, there could be you know, a super abundance of great sex going on mm-hmm. if we could kind of get our acts together. Mm-hmm. And honestly, on that point and kind of on the point of truth, I think that people who are honest with each other and can learn how to love each other in that honesty have the greatest degrees of intimacy. Mm. And because they have greater degrees of intimacy, they have better sex. Mm. And I, I just want to take this opportunity to delineate between intimacy and sex. Mm. To me, they don't have anything. They, mm-hmm. they're, they're very distinct mm-hmm. um, categories. Yeah. But it seems like there, there's a lot of confusion on this point. Mm. Intimacy 
is being known by somebody else. Yes. Sexual or not. Right. It's being seen for what you are. I feel like this conversation has been pretty intimate. Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm, happy. So. I'm glad that you feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but because so many of us are scared to be seen as we are, because mm. we're scared of rejection, ah. we can never have intimacy. Right. Intimacy is categorically precluded mm. by our fear of being known. Mm. Mm. Well, why would I be afraid of being known? Mm. It's because that person can reject me. Well, why is that so powerful? Mm. Well, it's because I'm living for their approval. Mm. Or maybe you're afraid of like not even knowing yourself in that position. And why wouldn't you know yourself? Because you can't, don't want to look. Okay. Or something. Okay, maybe. But let's let's dig into that a bit. Why wouldn't you want to look? Hmm. It's you. Yeah, yeah. It's not even anybody else to like condemn you. Right. It's just you. Well, this is a Peterson point, right? Like he talks about um, looking at the monster in the mirror and taking stock. Like if you're trying, and I've been doing this, man. Like okay. I did. I just got out of a twenty-six year mess, twenty-five year mess. You know. No. With my marriage, like I pretty much view that as. The first 26 years of your life? The end of a life in some sense. Okay. You're being reborn. Mm -hmm. But I'm having to pick up all these pieces and it's really hard and I'm not good at it. But um, looking at that is like a necessary part of moving forward, right? Like again, like with your wife, when you had to say like, listen, I feel this way about you now. Can we move forward? Like it was that with me, with myself. But I feel like most people are in a position where they're running around like rats trying to pay bills and working way too much and like from that perspective don't have a second to think about themselves or their issues let alone and then if you do have a second like it's just this it like i don't know if you saw the movie it with scary clown that turns into things it's just a gnarly thing that you don't want to look at so if you see it you turn away but that's where you have to be honest with yourself and be like okay this is me and I helped make this, but I have to look anyway. Like I'm going to open the door of this bedroom that I haven't been picking up for years hmm. and see what's going on. Good for you, man. But it's, that uh, is, that's, I just want to commend you mm. as, as scary and brutal and ugly and gross as that stuff is. Mm. If you don't address it, it doesn't get any less scary, brutal, gross, and ugly. Not at all. It just stays there. Or haunting you. It does. It can get much, much worse. Probably will. And one of the ways in which I think it tends to get worse for most people is by the manufactured lies that grow up around the grossness Mm. to protect it. Ah, yes. Because now I have to organize my whole story of the world in defense of this secret. Okay, that's worse. That's worse than being kind of uh, reprehensible. Mm. Like it's another level mm. of counterproductivity, mm-hmm. and it, and it it never has to stop. Mm. You know, people get so wound up. Mm. I think it's Dostoevsky who said that the man to his the man who lies to himself can be more easily offended than anyone. Mm. Hmm. Because I'm living in defense of my lies. Right, right, right. And now hmm. the whole, like, all of reality is conspiring against me. Hmm. Why? Because all of reality is characterized by truth. Mm-hmm. So now ah. reality is antagonistic to me. Yeah, yeah. Because I have this pet lie that I'm trying to protect. Right, right, right. Nothing in reality has an interest in protecting that lie hmm. but me. Hmm. Now the whole world is opposed to me. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, sorry, I just thought of a bunch of things. <laughs> Somebody was talking about 
Oh, is it a poly meetup group? We were talking about reality. <laughs> we were talking about how how we interact with it, or how like our ways of lying to ourselves, or our fantasies, or our fictions line up with reality, and like when we find out that like where the edge of our fiction essentially. One person said that he he know he knew there's a reality outside of us because when he messes up like when he tries to do something and then it goes a different way that means that there's like an unknown factor that's like outside of his purview that he didn't account for and that's how he kind of knew about reality wow and i don't know why i felt that was important to share but that's kind of an interesting observation yeah yeah it's at least intellectually honest enough to not deny that there's something I don't understand mm. at play here. Mm-hmm. It's taking effect on right. the things that I'm trying to accomplish. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, So, well, lies, pet lies. I like that concept of pet lie. I'm trying to root out all the pet lies, if that's a possible cause. It seems like we're probably built and trained up with a lot of pet lies to kind of undo. But mm-hmm. um, that seems like a nice way of putting it. Well, one of those lies is it's not okay to not be okay. Yeah. Right. We embrace that without even knowing what we've what we've swallowed, mm. and then we just live with this assumption that if I find out that I'm not okay in some way, mm. my only response has to be denying it mm. or distracting myself mm-hmm. from it. Make sure, making sure that no one else notices that. Right. One of the things I want to say to you, just uh, along uh, regarding this whole conversation and a lot of things that we've touched on is. Mm. It is just the case that as we come from a long lineage of other human beings, many of them have investigated these issues. Mm. And I think what you'll find as you continue to open up and dig in and discover is that like, sometimes it seems necessary to reinvent the wheel, but Mm. you will notice, oh man, that guy already figured this out. And if I had been able to listen to him, Mm. if I could have heard him, and I'm not talking about me, Mm. I'm talking about some authors, some great thinkers Mm. that you're like, oh, that's why Mm -hmm. they landed where they did Mm. is because they realized what I have now spent the last three, four years trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. Some of us really need to figure those things out for ourselves Mm. because we won't take anyone else's word for it. So that may be the the shortest way home for us. Mm. But it is just the case that we're not the first ones to try to figure these things out. Totally. Yeah, yeah. That's a nice thought. (laughs) Should we wrap it? If you feel like it. How far are we? So we... Got another hour? Yep. Okay, sweet. Yeah, I'm happy. Okay. Um... Do you have anything else? We really didn't do anything with Eisenstein. So oh. that, that could be for later or yeah. if there's anything you want to... Yeah, let me read that book, actually. Yeah. I think I would, I've just done podcasts and a little bit of that book. So yeah. it'd be good to do more research. Maybe we can do another conversation when, when that time comes. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, it is a worthwhile book. He talks about situationism mm. and determinism. Mm. Oh, yeah. So much there. He's cool. More abundance thinking, people. That's yeah. what I say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just, uh, I think the idea to believe that, like, the truth is a solid enough foundation mm. to yeah. hazard your your pet lies. Mm-hmm. Right. Throw those away. They're not serving you. They're not yeah. serving anyone. They're really just giving you, they're making the other people um, 
a threat to you and because of that mm. you don't say hi mm-hmm. at the gym yeah right <laughs> no that's great man i love just walking up to people and saying what's up yeah so w- will you like be eyeing these people at all or will they look at you or like you've seen them around or they're just strangers totally. total total strangers they haven't engaged with you at all no yeah they in fact one of the sad states of of life as we know it is that people don't look at other people mm-hmm. because a look conveys so much mm. that we don't want to run the risk of being misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Does it mean I'm attracted to you? Right. Does it mean I'm suspicious of you? Right. Does it mean... Um, You're doing something weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's like we're so afraid of each mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. because we don't extend the charitable view of what others might be up to mm-hmm. and just assume, ah, they're probably a decent person like I am. Mm-hmm. Part of that is because we're so addicted to the narrative Mm. from the media that sensationalizes every story so that all we see at that level is the worst possible stuff Mm. or the most flagrant offenses Mm -hmm. against humanity and we're left with the assumption oh that's how people are Mm -hmm. and so I have to be a corrective to that at some level be like no no what's up right what's up I love that yeah just a random friendly person. Then that was that's that's kind of what you and I did. Yeah, yeah. Like I was right. like, "Hey, I'm going to the gym tonight. You want to go?" You're like, "Sure, let's yeah, go." Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, For I'm sure. looking forward to like I'm sitting here talking to you, and I'm I'm thinking about rock climbing. Yeah, nice. I need to get in there. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I'll have time for the gym. Oh, by the way, um, little plug for Phil. Uh, what he does as a day job, even though he's not a capitalist, is he, he claims... <laughs> I am a capitalist, whether I like it or not. Okay, yeah. <laughs> kind of like we're all Keynesians. Yes, um, exactly. Do you do you want to talk about, just mention your cleaning business? Cleaning? I clean some houses, some businesses, so... And are you, do you, do you have room on your roster for other clients? Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually trying to work with uh, Sarah, a partner of mine, more. She's trying to clean more and do more um, self-employment type work, so... Mm-hmm. Um, I could just hand it off to her or share it with her somehow too. Yeah. But yeah. What I was implying earlier uh, about like realizing that other people have thought through a lot of this mm. contains the seeds of the suggestion that maybe after you've worked through this polyamory season for long enough, you'll, you'll start to realize, oh, that's why they chose monogamy. Mm. For all of the trauma that it may have caused you because of it having been done in a way that was less than might be hoped for <laughs> foolish yeah i don't know because I, I don't know how what was modeled to you exactly oh i see it is uh-huh. just the case that a lot of us are doing things in a way that cast it in a bad light mm. but like right. so if you get in a wreck in a ford it isn't logical to say no one should ever drive a ford again sure because of all the other people that are driving fords without getting in a wreck right it's not the ford's fault mm. in the same way it isn't necessarily monogamy's fault mm. but it is possible for monogamy to be, you know, driven off a cliff just like it is mm-hmm. <laughs> to do the same with the board. Right, right, right. That's my only point. Yeah. So, so you're doing your cleaning, and do you have a business name? Like, how can people find you if they want to hire um, you is what I'm trying to get They at. can just get a hold of me on Instagram or, like, my phone. I mean, I give out business cards. Oh, you have so, a card. Okay. Yeah. Um, nice. Phil Griffin. And, yeah. and if they want to find you, what's, your, what's the name of your foremost band? that you play with um, Bull Market Bull Market we're on Spotify and stuff. B-U-L-L yeah oh yeah it's pretty obnoxious that's capitalistic if, oh, if yeah. ever there was dude I gotta play the game yeah <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have like a reference to capitalism in the name of your band yeah 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 it's all about it <laughs> cool 
to get the mics out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Filthy Talk on Waste Radio. I hope you liked it. If you did, please think about going to iTunes or whatever podcast service you use and think about leaving us a review. Hopefully positive. Um, Apparently this sort of thing helps out with algorithms and other mysterious computer functions. Um, Also check out waste-division.org where you can find other work of ours. My friend Eric does a lot of work publishing regularly, uh, what we call front page features there. If you just go to that website and then we have a menu that drops down, you can see other stuff we're working on. Um, Coming up, we have Julia Louise Dreyfus 7.5, which is... um, how would you say, like a halfway version of our usual full DIY art fest that we call Julia Louise Dry Fest. Um, We're heading into our eighth year, so we're calling this one 7.5 because we usually throw it in the summer and now we're doing it, um, or we're doing kind of a version of it in the spring. And it should be fun. So that's going to be March 6th, I think, which is a Friday. And we have headlining... Uh, my band, Bull Market, and Bozeman Band, Panther Car, and Missoula Band, Fools. And speaking of Panther Car, um, we have at the end here a song that they just put out on their new album. This song is called uh, Rainbows, I think. I always fuck it up because I, I forget if it's plural or not. But yeah, it's Rainbows, plural. And then the album is going to be called, as soon as I type it into my thing, I'm an asshole because I don't remember, but their album is called Pomegranate. Yeah, I knew that. Um, And it's cool. I listened to it, and I think Rainbows is my favorite track, and so you can see what you think of it. So this is Panther Car with their track off their new album, Pomegranate. Track is called Rainbows. Okay, we'll see you next time.